Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Bond by Numbers. Thank you very much for joining us for this, our 26th episode. Today's feature, Dr. No, Bond Dr. number no. one. Bond number one. And joining me across the pond in Canada, Ontario, is, of course, the BFG himself, Joshua Dwight Gordon-Taylor. BFG, Hello. how are you feeling on this, the 26th show of the series? Yeah, so Dr. No, uh, the debut Bond film, as we talked about, uh, this is the first time that fans who read the Ian Fleming novels for the past decade um, finally got to see James Bond put to screen. And we're not talking about the 1955 Casino Royale TV movie with Barry Nelson. No, we're not talking about that. We're talking about an actual film budget being put to a, to a James Bond story adapted to film. And this was the first time people got to see it. This is for us is like seeing like our favorite comic book character come to life, you know, as it was for the people back then, you know. Yeah, so it was yeah. it was a big it was a big moment. Um, absolutely. Right. So, Josh, James Bond Day was the 5th of October. And, you know, there was not a lot going on that we wanted to uncover about the new Bond film for today's episode. But one of no, the things, world of James Bond was kind of nil. But you have something. Nil. But yeah, we got something. Of course, we've got the teaser poster, which has caused a lot of fans to get you know, people are spoiled are brats nowadays online. I'm yeah. sorry. They're, they're spoiled brats. They wanted to market something and they put out a poster and they don't have and they uh, maybe they shouldn't have done the poster in the first place. I kind of agree with that. If they're not going to have anything to put out. But I mean, they wanted to put a poster out and get get the fans going. And I guess they, they never had the marketing uh, talent at the moment to go and put something together really good yet. Um, yeah. you gotta, you gotta look back at Spectre's marketing though. I mean, it was very impressive. That whole thing with like the, the bullet in the windshield looking like the Spectre mm-hmm. octopus mm-hmm. and, and stuff like that. I mean, that was good, like Marvel level kind of promotion, you know, for, uh, for it a was. series. Yeah. But yeah. We, we haven't seen a trailer yet. And of course no. the Spectre trailer, as you're saying, did a lot of good work too, using the OHMSS themes, um, that Barry had constructed. But here, this teaser poster, it isn't that bad. It just shows... Uh, Craig in a tux looking a little bit haggard and confused, kind of doing a side profile thing um, or turning to the side, uh, you know, on a teal background sort of thing. And, you know, you know what, given the state of movie posters nowadays, which are all photoshopped anyways, except for some with, with exceptions, um, you know, that's I'm not surprised that's how it's going to turn out in the first place. Mm. I'm sure the the Blu-ray will probably have that exact cover on it. But <laughs> but what what did the fans want? Because I'm sitting here thinking, that's not a great I'm going poster. back right now. I'm like, turning around and I'm looking at my Live and Let Die poster, movie mm-hmm. poster. Print from yeah, that'll never happen, though. And like that's like you got Roger Moore there holding a gun in a really weird way. And all these all these women are t- tarot cards coming up, coming to life and <laughs> all crawling around him and stuff. And then there's like a speedboat like down below and stuff like that and alligators. And then there's like a police car. I guess it's J.W. Pepper doing his thing. So I don't know. I don't know. I think a lot of people ever top that poster. Yeah. But was that the teaser poster? The no, uh, that that was like the that was the in-house that was the in-house yeah, that's right poster. so so i mean a teaser poster now and perhaps they didn't quite exist the way that they did that they do now but a teaser poster isn't meant to reveal all sorts of plot details and, and features right no but fans are ravenous for information nowadays so when yeah, it, they really so, are. So, so when you get an official release and not kind of you know um put all your effort into it, then mm-hmm. you're, you're going to get crapped on in the fandom. It's just, yeah. it's just, that's the way, that's the way that it is. Mm-hmm. And it, it's unfortunate because, you know, the first thing I noticed on Twitter was that people were going to do their fan art and they're saying, look, could have been like this, should have been like that. Um, you know, doing like sepia uh, cut shots with the, the DB5 and the and the Vanquish, not the Vanquish, sorry, the Vantage and all this sort of stuff, right? Because they know the Man entitlement has gone so bad nowadays, man. It's, I it's, know, it's right? like, 
it's like there's actually people like uh, there's actually people who want like certain people to, like who make films that don't turn out the way that they want them to. They want them to basically publicly crucified for doing it incorrectly or not doing it the way that that they want to. Like you know, no one can make a bad movie anymore or just make a mediocre film anymore. Um, if you make a, a mediocre film about a popular property, then apparently, according to these people online, you should be finished in Hollywood. You know what I mean? Yeah, like totally. Yeah, there's no more subjectivity in quote unquote art anymore. It's no, sorry, objectivity. Sorry, I meant to say it's complete subjectivity. And people, because, you know, they're used to getting all these stories uh, brought out to them in, in, in any form, whether it's on streaming, whether it's uh, from the films or from comic books or whatever kind of way they get access to serials, they expect like their own expectations to be realized. Mm-hmm. And I know there's going to be people going to argue against me on that. And I'm, I'm, I, and I'm probably just talking, I'm probably blowing a bit of uh, wind from, you know, uh, wind here and, and that, you know, tooting my horn in that capacity. But I don't, I don't know. I just think lately that I'm really seeing there's a lot of, a lot of entitlement in fandoms. I agree with you. I see a lot of it as well. And I can't help but wonder how happy are people, how happy are these individuals when they go to the cinema? Really? Like, are they sitting there to enjoy the the, the spectacle, the excitement of seeing their favorite actors or favorite characters back on screen? Or are they actually going with a little clipboard in mind, like perhaps even more, more than critics looking to be satisfied and suckled, you know? I'll give an example to that. Like, when I went and saw Avengers Endgame, which is the end of the big first phase of the Marvel Cinematic Universe or whatever, I had my checklist on what I was expecting to happen in the movie. And I liked the film when I watched it. It was really good. But it wasn't until the second time that I saw it that I really enjoyed the movie more as a film, as a story, because my expectations were already met or they weren't met and I was able to adjust to them, right? I could focus on the uh, objectively the story, how it was directed, how it was filmed, the the script and all that kind of stuff in an objective fashion. And then I was able to enjoy the movie. And it's kind of sad in a way that we've got to that point now. Mm -hmm. I guess it is. And I mean, good, good on you for recognizing that in yourself. Yes. I guess I guess we have to be careful as well, don't we? Because we're teetering near the edge of this ourselves, of the fandom. I mean, this is a James yes. Bond retrospective yes. fan uh, fan built podcast. Yes, absolutely. Which we're sharing with others in the community, and we're not trying to put anybody off. We're not trying to you know, no. s- smash them down. But but maybe you just fucking relax a little bit, and you just <laughs> you know you just enjoy enjoy everyone the is content. Like, is like know? all the SJWs are ruining James Bond. They have this Phoebe Holler Bridges person now who's writing the who's doing script doctoring. She wrote and starred in the show Fleabag, which got big Emmy things, and it's supposed to be a big like I don't know a lot of I see a lot of people who are kind of like of the uh, anti-feminist kind of angle saying how it's like it's it's a SJW feminist fil- story and, and now this person is going to be taking over James Bond and writing for it like that's why there's all there's already a female mm-hmm. 007 in the movie like there's people already but what it is is that people are making YouTube videos off this from all these angry people and they yeah. get clicks for it it's, and, and and that's what it's all about it's yeah. it's 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 superficial um, rage is what it is. Fleabag's pretty good property actually itself. I've, I watched that. It's a pretty good production. Yeah, yeah I, I, I watched I, that a few I, months I ago. I heard it's really good. Mm-hmm. I like Phoebe Waller Bridge. She seems very. Uh, she seems like a good writer and whatnot. I even enjoyed her her weird kind of like. Uh, she was like in love with Lando Calrissian or something as that droid in uh, Solo. So I was kind of. Oh really? Uh, is that was that her? Yeah, that was her. Oh, yeah. Cool. Cool. So I wasn't quite sure on the on what their relationship was in that mm-hmm. movie. Mm-hmm. I and guess 
I guess Lando, you know, he, he's pansexual, I guess, in that way, including droids, I suppose. I don't know. Well, we're also not quite sure on, on what rewrites she did, what injections to the script that she made. And until yes. the film comes out and until the screenwriters themselves want to divulge that information, it's all heresy and it's all sort of. Just, and uh, to be perfectly fair. I mean, while I love the the Connery era of James Bond, it does take place in the time. It was made in the time that it was. And we've discussed already scenes like in Goldfinger and Thunderball in particular, where, you know, maybe this kind of writing, uh, this kind of uh, script doctoring might be helpful to bring Bond into uh, into the modern age, even more so. You know what I mean? Um, in this, this post-Me Too world. Well, I don't think for a single minute that when you're dealing with a film that Purvis and Wade are behind the same guys who gave you die another day. And you know, they've uh, got that, you know, they've got that somewhere in their psyche. I don't think having rewrites and just an extra set of eyes on the product script is a bad thing at all. No, definitely not. Purvis and Wade need to be put in check because obviously they were by Haggis um, mm, yeah. and, 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 and crew afterwards. So, mm-hmm. well, hey, so that's well, her, yeah, that's her world of James Bond. Was, was there anything else that you can think of? There was actually something else in the world of James Bond, yeah, that I that I came across. A lot of people have been making. I mean, obviously the the the, the poster, right? The poster, and yes. the, people have also kind of been maybe the tabloid media have been trying to make stories out of the fact that Daniel they've Craig, always do that Daniel Craig uh, was drunk and quite um, gregarious, gregarious at at a cast party that wrapped in Italy. I think. What does gregarious uh, mean? Because you're like, uh, does that mean you're you're like I don't know, like Henry VIII at a party or something? Like, what does that mean, gregarious? Gregarious, just very warmly spoken, generous, kind of outgoing. Gregarious. Oh, not, not like Henry VIII. Okay, no, never mind. but you know, he was kind of gushing about all you know the fun he had and the thanks he had, and, and then he had made a comment about, "Oh, I'm very drunk right now. Let's cut a cake and all of this stuff." And I think oh my he, god, tabloid. Uh, yeah, fodder. yeah, and I think people just went nuts about that whole like, "Oh, he was drunk. Daniel Craig's like, out of control on the sets and all this kind of shit," right? Oh, yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, because he can't yeah, get the, drunk the, with the people he's worked with for the last month, right, in a location. Probably more than that as well. Anyway, uh, I, I, that's the only real James Bond news that, that that's kind of hit my radar. And I know there's people listening to the show out there who's saying, well, there's tons more stuff. Yes, there probably is, but we're not interested in covering it here. Why Dr. No? So that's the main question. Um, what I got from all the notes that I read on the um, production of Dr. No was that this book was chosen because it was it was under the line in terms of the depiction of like sexuality, violence and and I guess and, and other things. They thought it was the safest one that they could possibly do. Yeah. And it was a more recent one as well. So it would be in the memory. It'd be fresher in the memory. Uh-huh. Um Broccoli and Saltzman definitely had some world building set up here, though, in the Bond series. They casted um, Bernard Lee and Lois Maxwell, um, uh, Connery, like they they and they those people that they cast like Maxwell and Lee in particular, they were signed on for five films um, initially, as as was Connery. So they were definitely planning to build something. And the very fact, too, is that um, while Thunderball was their main goal for the first film, they couldn't do it because of the Kevin McClory situation. But they still yep. put Spectre into the script anyways and made Dr. Mm-hmm. No an agent of Spectre um, instead of in the book where he's just kind of his own kind of operator 
private operator, I guess you could say. Um, so already the, they had plans in building up a Bond world and, and and that this was a hint to everyone that, you know, we're going to have more than one film. And this, I think, is one of the first things that really happened in major motion picture cinema. I mean, you have, you know, back in the day when people went to the movie theaters in the 40s and 50s, uh, even 30s, there was a little on the matinees, you get little serials of like Batman or Zorro or something like that or Flash Gordon. That's and those, right, were, yeah. those were the only serials that really existed rather than what's on television. So mm-hmm. this is the first time we're bringing kind of like a, a cinematic universe per se to the silver screen. It was an ambitious move on the part of the producers too for yeah. a, a film that they didn't. They, they knew they were dealing with hot property in the Fleming character, but they didn't necessarily know how the films were going to take off. So it's ambitious to build the world so very obviously from start one, you know? So can you tell me what the budget was for Dr. No? I can, but I'm not going to because it's time for us to get into Cubby's Corner. And as you know, Josh, I have great joy in turning the stage over to you for Cubby's Corner every single episode. Although I'm surrounded by production notes and books, I don't read any of them when I come to do Mm -hmm. the show, at least in my retrospective, because I love listening to you share all the facts. And I can tell that you have got an absolute uh, Kraken's worth of facts and details to share with us. So once again, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us along the ride of episode 26. It's time to crack into Dr. No properly. Over to you, BFG with Cubby's Corner. Tree blind, my scenario. Tree blind, my steer de go. That was a very long-winded way of you dismissing my pop quiz, but thank you. You can do do your pop quiz in Cubby's Corner, but I just wanted to get the actual transition (laughs) so that we got our sequence and our number in, because it sounded like you were already there. Stop using logic against me. Got to. Scott destroys Josh with facts and logic. (laughs) (laughs) Right, pal, take it on. Uh, All right. So the budget of Dr. No, to to answer the pop quiz, is it was only a million dollars. So... Now, United Artists was interested in making the Bond films for the longest time, um, going into like the early 60s after the whole McClory thing and whatnot. But they were not allowed to get the get, get the films because they did not have the rights. Who had the rights? A man named Harry Saltzman. Uh, he had, so he had the rights and he was part of a partnership with another company. And when he bought out... He used those those that those funds to purchase the Bond film rights, but he could not get it off the ground, and it was a temporal situation where he had to use it right away, or he would just lose more money off it. Now, uh, at the time, um, Cubby Albert R. Broccoli was with a film company called Warwick Productions. Um, it was him and there's another screenwriter that he used, uh, Wolf Mankiewicz. Um, they were working on an Arabian Night screenplay, and nothing was working out. They couldn't. You know, like they just couldn't get things going together. They were really frustrated. And in a, in a, in a long time, and like late in the night, you know, Mankiewicz asked Broccoli what, what he wanted to make as a film. What was his dream film? And Broccoli re- replied, the James Bond film series. Mankiewicz is like, well, uh, I can introduce you to the guy who has the James Bond film rights. And so this is how Cubby Broccoli met Harry Saltzman. Hmm, when Cubby met Harry. When, when Cubby Harry, met when Harry. Harry met Cubby. When Harry met Cubby. Yeah, ex- ex- Exactly. <laughs> They didn't meet over an ice chocolate ice cream or, or Sunday, but you know what I mean. Yeah, um, yeah. had set broccoli and uh, Saltzman up. Um, so broccoli wanted wanted to buy him out, but Harry was like, "Hey, let's be partners." 
So they went to United Artists and uh, Picker, uh, the, um, the the head producer of United Artists, uh, he was sitting in his chair and when they came into his office in New York, and as soon as he they walked in the room and said, we got the James Bond films, he went right forward in his chair and they closed that deal within an hour. No one left the room. They did not leave until that deal was closed. And he's even quoted back then saying that uh, the, back then you could, you know, make make a deal to uh, sign a film deal, get the rights, pre-production, filming, uh, post-production, getting all the receipts from the box office without even signing, signing a piece of paper because that's how things were done back then. Mm-hmm. Sounds a bit under the table and shady, but... Uh, it does, but I think a lot of those, a lot of the kind of early construction on films were like that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's how the James Bond series came together. Um, so how did they get the million? How did they get uh, the financing for Dr. No? Well, they went to United Artists who, as soon as they had the rights, that that was it, right? They backed them. So why hadn't United Artists kind of pursued Saltzman on their own? knowing that he had the rights. I don't know. Because if you say they, they, you know, did you not say that United Artists wanted to make the Bond films for a while? They did, but a lawyer said that the, um, that the rights belonged to someone else and, that, and, 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 and they were not able to use them. And I okay. guess Saltzman wanted to make these films, right? Right. And at the same time, Broccoli was working on this screenplay with, with Wolf Mankiewicz. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. And that's when they uh, that's when it all kind of went down in that in that fashion. Now, what they did was they pulled the resources together and formed a Swiss company called Danjak, which is basically a combination of uh, Dana, which is Albert R. Broccoli's wife, and Jackie, who is Harry Saltzman's wife. And they formed the two of those together to form their Danjak company. And Eon Productions was born to produce them. Hmm. Cool. I never knew that the names of the wives were in Danjak. I mean, of course, that would be an easy thing for, you know, real Bond fans to pick up on or to know. That's a nugget, I guess, a trivia that they would know. But for yeah. me, it's a, it's ephemera that I hadn't yet learned. Yeah. Also, United Artists were also in, in competition to, with Hollywood to make with other Hollywood studios to make films that were lucrative. And a number of Hollywood film studios actually turned down the Bond films, wouldn't fund them because they were too British or too blatantly sexual for their censors at the time. Oh, wow. Yeah. And of course, this is the so this was essentially the union of um, Ian Fleming, I'm sorry, Ian Fleming of uh, Albert R. Broccoli and Harry Saltzman, which lasted all the way up until their split at the time of the man with the golden gun when Saltzman sold his shares of Dan Jack to United Artists and left uh, and got out and Albert R. Broccoli took over from there. Yeah, that was the last Saltzman Broccoli production. And Warwick Films, um, which was Broccoli's company, um, had a well-known director, had a, I guess, a very competent director there um, uh, uh, under their auspices, and that was Terrence Young. And so he was commissioned to direct the first James Bond film. Um, As I mentioned, Thunderball was the first film that they considered, but the ongoing legal dispute between them uh, with McClory and Ian Fleming, they chose Dr. No!, and it was also kind of um, topical regarding the whole Cape Canaveral rockets and going into the space program that was happening in the early 60s. So it was definitely a, a, a good choice on, on their part. Mm-hmm. Before they offered it to Terrence Young, they looked at people like Guy Green, Guy Hamilton even, uh, Val Guest and Ken Hughes, all of them uh, established British directors. 
but they turned them all down. Uh, there's a lot, not a lot of faith in the project. Even Wolf Mankiewicz, uh, who was going to, who, who originally signed on to write the screenplay with his, with uh, Richard Maybaum, um, he eventually backed out because he thought it would be a disaster. Really? Um, yeah, he backed out completely, and so he, has, and he asked his name to be taken off the screenwriters list. So, well, what were some of these fears based on, or I mean, with respect to Doctor No's production, why were so many kind of uh, early cages rattled? I just think it's because of this of, of that was for an, because this was still a Hollywood production per se, like American film American producers behind it, United Artists, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the the blatant sexual um, nature of the books and the violence and a whole bunch of things people didn't know if it could be done to the screen and and translated in that way, right? Mm-hmm. And that's something that Terrence Young is, was able to achieve uh, with his direction. Um, I'll go into that in a second here. Because they they thought that because they thought that Young would be ideal in transferring the essence of Bond from from book to screen. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, he's he's certainly uh, he's certainly credited as giving Connery style. Yeah, that's what I'm going to get and into. That, here, so. that sounds really funny, you know, because you know Connery is a cool customer and he looks particularly mm. suave and in control. But he does. There's, there's but... a few there's a few things in the production that I know for a fact Terrence Young brought to the to the scene. Oh, yeah. So casting 007 was the next step. There was actually a contest where six final contenders competed for the role. Only one was selected. Uh, he was actually quite good. I forget his name, but uh, he was quite good, actually. But he's like, they already casted Connery, so it was too late. <laughs> hmm. um, kind of like it could have been like a George Lazenby s- 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 situation there, you know, like the 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 chocolate guy or whatever. Um, now, Fleming, Fleming is... Uh... He's well documented as saying he always imagined a guy like uh, David Niven. David Niven. Uh, the other one he had, Richard Johnson, I think was the other guy. He said, "Yeah, there was another fella too, though. Uh, oh, I can't remember his name now. Uh, just a tall, dark-haired Englishman. Oh shit, it's bothering me because this is something I do know. Anyway, um, did did that ever come close to happening? Was Niven ever approached or even kind of brought into discussions? About I could it? Roger I could Moore find... as well no, was kid. early mentioned." Roger Moore was really mentioned, but he was tied up with the saint. And uh, another person who was also considered for the role was uh, Cary Grant. But oh. Cary Grant would be a one and done pitcher. That was it. Is that it? Yeah. Yeah. He was not. He was not going to sign on to a multiple film deal. Okay. Right. But he he was interested in a one and done. He was interested in one and done. Yeah. But that wasn't what what Saltzman and Broccoli wanted to do. They wanted to adapt multiple novels. So. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. So they wanted someone, and. Uh, so a screenwriter friend of Broccoli, he suggested Sean Connery um, and for him to go watch Darby Gill, Darby O'Gill and the Little People, which was like mm-hmm. a film in the late 50s. I know it well. And, I remember seeing yeah. that as a kid. Yeah. And so uh, he Broccoli called his wife Dana in to go and watch the film and see what he, and see what she thought about it. And she thought he was fantastic for the for the role. However, they were still skeptical. So was United Artists. Um, he was a rough diamond, according to Ken Adam, Sean Connery. This was some guy, even he came in like in the interview wearing like non-pressed clothes and, and he had a real kind of like cocky attitude that impressed them a bit, but they were still weren't sure on him. And so this is when Terrence Young came in. So he would sort him out. He takes him to Taylor's, uh, Turnbull and Asser, gets him you know, custom-made suits that he has to sleep in even. Uh, he just kind of basically refines him into a, into giving at least the facade of a gentleman. So Connery's kind of rough Scottish, I guess, um, attitude was kind of covered up in the swagger of Bond, thanks to Terence Young. Mm-hmm. 
all the, you know, he trained Connery in the arts of being a gentleman and all the attributes we associate, you know, with Fleming's super spy. And, you know, before Connery turned, I'll, I'll use that term, before he turned on the series and turned on the producers, uh, only to be sort of repatriated with Cubby later in his life, uh, he he's actually himself gone on the record, hasn't he, and, and spoken of Terence Young's influence on him. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I really think it's when Terrence Young left the Thunderball and, and didn't come back in the series after that. Maybe that's when Connery wasn't interested in the direction that the, the films were going. It's very possible. Mm-hmm. Maybe so. Maybe so. Yeah. I always had this kind of interesting theory because Terrence Young brought so much style um, to the Bond films, even Thunderball, which I, which, which I think was too bloated for his for his likes. He's good at making taut spy thrillers with like with care with good characters and and he likes having artful builds build ups to things, you know. And <clears throat> Thunderball, I think, was just it was more of a Guy Hamilton kind of story because um, Guy Hamilton was great at making things big and bang and, and, and make it but still stylish at the same time but it was kind of a uh, it's kind of a superficial veneer that he had to it and only Connery really carried Guy Hamilton's movies so I find that but while well, Terrence Young the movies carry themselves in my personal uh, opinion so I always wondered you know if Terrence Young did Honor Majesty's Secret Service or You Only Live Twice you know could he have actually got that emotional range out of Sean Connery potentially if Connery had decided to get, I mean, there might have been other reasons why Connery didn't want to. Oh, I know. Be, I'm just thinking, know, majesties. Yeah, this is just kind of my tinfoil hat theory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we we can get back to that when we do. You only live twice. Yeah, absolutely. We'll talk about you only live twice. Uh, maybe next. Maybe next time. Who knows? Who knows? Uh, we'll see where we'll see where the roulette wheel falls. And so Wolf Mankiewicz ba- bows out, and then you have basically Richard Maybaum, and then you also have Johanna Harwood. Uh, who's basically like a script girl, script doctor or whatever, as they call her. And she was, she was then to polish it up and make it feel more like an English film. That's what, kind of what she did. Interesting. And what's, Berkeley what's Mather she known for, Josh? was, what's was her writer. Because she must have a pedigree if she, you know, she was trusted by these two guys. Yes. She's best known for Dr. No and for Russia of Love. Oh, okay. Irish screenwriter. Wonder if she had any anything. She, she worked in the Irish. She worked in the Irish film industry and then came over. I bet she had something to do with yeah. the story. She worked on Punch magazine, contributed to that, which is a British satirical magazine. Yeah, that that doesn't that, that brings us back to uh, Glenn, who gave us the Punch magazine review of Moonraker. Oh yeah, that's right. It was Punch magazine, wasn't it? It was Punch magazine. Yeah, she she became a talent agent and also worked on contributed to Punch. So when it closed its London office, Harry Saltzman took over those offices of the agency, and mm. she stayed on as a secretary and eventually his reader in the late 50s. So she read his ah, scripts. Right. She, was, she was a script girl. So she was a continuity error checker, basically. Cool. Um, and then she eventually became a screen polisher. And earned his trust. Yeah, that's, that's really great. That's cool. I've noticed her name before and often thought, wondered to myself, oh, I should probably learn more about her because, you know, to be so early and instrumental in the script writing and the kind of foundations of the, 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 the series, you know? Yeah. He phoned her one night with an idea of, of a, for a Bob Hope film and asked her to develop it on, uh, uh, to an, an outline writing as J.M. Harwood. And she wrote a spoof James Bond story in 59 called Some Are Born Great. Hmm. Well, there yeah. you go. And now we know so more about her. That definitely connects her to Bond now, right? So there you go. That explains how she got into the Cubby Broccoli Eon Productions uh, circle. Mm-hmm. So that kind of explains things in that respect. Um, things in the script, too, that they added while they went along, filming the movie, actually, 
was, uh, for example, like the scene where um, Bond leaves uh, Mr. Jones dead in the car and or it makes a comment to the guard. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, or tells or, or tells the uh, construction worker on the side of the cliffside, you know, the three blind mice were late for a funeral. That was all Terrence Young's thing, showing all this dark, macabre, kind of quasi-sadist stuff, as people called it back then. People thought this was like – it promoted sadism um, in, in a weird way. And this is how the censors were back then too, right? Like they didn't want – they thought that this movie promoted amorality. And that's what people were worried about in regard to the film. And Fleming's novels, I guess, were also being looked at in that fashion. So Yeah, they, and they had been for a while. They had been for a while, exactly. So Young decided to inject more humor – because he considered a lot of things in this film, the sex and violence and so on, if played straight, would A, be objectionable, and B, we're never going to go past the censors. But the moment you take the mickey out, put put the tongue out in the cheek, it seems to disarm. Mm-hmm. And I mean, Bond would use that as a recipe for the next 50 years, right? Exactly. That was that was the basics. I mean, mm-hmm. think about this movie is we have the template for all Bond films. You got the one-liners, you got the women, you got the girls, you got Connery, you know, being smooth and suave and sophisticated with the with a but with a rough like you know but with a rough edges. And then you also have you know the Bond villain being established, uh, the secret base is being established, and the Ken Adams production design. All of those. Those, you know, these tropes from the Bond films begin with Dr. No. It's true enough. And we we do have a quartermaster scene, even though gadgets aren't as big a part of this film. Yeah. And answer your question, too. United Artists um, were asked by the producers, Saltzman and Broccoli, for financing. But they would only give them $1 million. So that's why the budget was $1 million. Mm-hmm. So, but the UK arm of UA, they actually threw on another 100000 so they could so they could create the climax where Doctor No's base explodes. So for that basic kind of um, explosive special effects, real vi- visual effects in that particular fashion, they threw another hundred thousand on the budget just for that scene. That's incredible. So that scene was a tenth of the film's budget. That's right. And because of their low budget on the film, only one sound editor was um, hired for the. F- for the film because usually a movie has two types of uh, sound editors one for sound effects and one for dialogue mm-hmm. yeah so they they basically uh, made a lot of the scenery in cheap ways uh, Ken, Ken Adam he learned in the 19 in 1950s you know how to create sets that are colorful and exciting but also economically viable you know for for the film budget Wow. Now, so you, yeah. you, you obviously don't have a list of the dailies and the reshoots, but I no. have a suspicion that there were places in this film where maybe Terrence Young and his instinct would like to have reshot, but didn't mm. because of money, you know? And, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, yeah. We, we, uh, we can talk about that. And that's part of the roughness of the film, too, which yeah. we, you would expect from a first in a series and a yeah. film of only a million dollars. Even so, though, I mean, like with Young's direction, you know, stylish direction that was was still present. And then you had, you know, Ted Moore, the, his loyal cinematographer doing the camera work. On top of that, you have Peter Hunt just doing wonders in the editing room. So uh, just think of this, just think of, the, of that of just like the editing and just that scene where the Strangway secretary is, is assassinated, you know, just like the, the crash of the glass and the sound effects there, the, the editing of like her face screaming and then all of a sudden like the guns appearing. They're able to kind of show a very violent action without being too gory. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now let's look now let's look past the uh, the blood thing, the blood brick in her in her hand on the floor. You can totally tell that when she went down the ground, she totally smeared herself on the ground out of camera sight <laughs> for that scene because she had the blood in her hand. Right. 
Yeah. And that's like one of those like bricks that, that they use. I forget the term for them. Is it spigots or? Yeah, I'm, I'm not to, sure. Yeah, I, I forget the, the, the name for them now. Our viewers, uh, who our viewers, our listeners, I should say, um, if you can tell us what the name of those things they use, you know, Sam Peckinpah used in his Westerns, like for blood splatter and everything like that. What is the term for that? That would be great. And even when Ken Adam was building the set, too, for Dr. No's Fortress, um, he put a lot of, like, modern art around there, kind of like – and uh, different art, art from around the world, different antiques around the world. The, the very fact that like, they wanted to get an aquarium, but the thing is is that the screen uh, – the the, the, the the projector couldn't get the animals that they wanted or the fish that they wanted, I, I should say. Like they wanted to have big fish in there. They couldn't even get that. So they basically took goldfish and then they put it that in the, instead and then they just basically blew it up to, to, to look at – and they made the comment in the film about it being magnified mm-hmm, just mm-hmm. to kind of make, make that, set, that set make sense. So that set that you saw was actually very cheap but it was very lovingly put together too. Because One of the things that happened at the time when Dr. No was being made was a famous uh, portrait of, uh, of Wellington. Yeah, the, there uh, was Wellington. Yeah, yeah I thought so. Yeah, the poster of uh, Arthur Wellesley, the Duke of Wellington, was painted by a uh, was uh, there was a famous painting of him by Goya, and it was stolen at the time, and no one and it hasn't yet, it has yet to been found. Ah, so as right. a joke, that explains as a, a lot. Yeah. As a joke, Ken Adam got the picture, got a thumbnail of the picture and of the painting, and made his own cardboard copy of it and placed it on the set. So essentially, it looks like Doctor No has the copy of the has actually has the original Goya of of Wellington. That's right. And there is a moment where Connery walks past it. He stops, yes. and there's a score. The score sort of rattles a little bit there for a minute, it, doesn't it? It goes into almost like a uh, a naval, like a very British naval kind of theme. Hey, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, yeah, that's that's definitely true. I thought that was just a very kind of British moment. Connery recognized someone if you lived in England you would know right away when yeah. I was a kid I did not know that that was the guy that defeated Napoleon you know I did not know that was Wellington well I, um, certainly, I, was just... I certainly I recognized it as Wellington but I did know I knew nothing about the stolen painting oh yeah the, it's a famous stolen art painting of Goya's portrait of the Duke of Wellington is it still out is it still out from what I understand it's still outstandingly missing that's right hmm. okay um yeah and they used and so Jamaica where they had to film, um, that was scouted by Chris Blackwell. Now, Chris Blackwell is the founder of Island Records. Blanche and Blackwell's son, right? Blanche Blackwell's son. Who, uh, and, now, Blanche actually had an affair with Ian Fleming. Oh, a long-standing affair, yeah. Long-standing affair. He was married to Anne Charteris, but mm-hmm. while he was in Jamaica, uh, he he uh, had yeah he had some time with Blanche for sure. It was actually and, during the writing of Doctor Know the Book that that affair I, took place. Yeah, I know. Or I should say that it started. <laughs> and how interesting then Chris Blackwell does the production, um, like the, he's like the uh, site, you know, mm-hmm. director for the <laughs> Dr. No, the film. So he brought them to all the different locations that you see, like in Kingston. Um, uh, he scouted those places out. He scouted out the beach where we meet Honey on Crab Key. Um, that was a place owned by someone named Sim- Simpson. Uh, I was going to say Maggie Simpson, but that's not her name. Um, uh, but, uh, but it's someone named Simpson and they own the property there and, uh, that's where they filmed that segment. So once they cast Sean Connery, uh, everyone else kind of came, came into play. Uh, a New York actor named Joseph Wiseman was cast as, um, Dr. No, uh, to illustrate his Chinese heritage. Uh, he's supposed to be German Chinese. Uh, they gave him kind of epicanthic fold sort of, I guess, you know, 
a hint of it like in his uh, in his face. Mm-hmm. Um, they also did that for actress Zena Marshall, who played Miss Tarot. Um, and they also had gave it to the actress uh, Marguerite Dewars, who played the uh, freelance, the uh, photographer. Photographer, yeah, yeah, because she she looks because she, she she is not Asian. She's actually very Jamaican, um, and uh, she was actually Miss Jamaica, and she worked at the airport in Kingston when she yeah. was hired. You know, but with both the book and this film, there are some very controversial. There are some very delicate racial profiling what am i trying to say there's some yeah well one thing was eye-opening to me reading the book and also seeing dr no which made sense is that i wasn't aware i mean you think of jamaica in our own kind of my own kind of way that i always thought about it i had no idea you know like that there was actually a strong uh, population of chinese that immigrated to jamaica and set up basically immersed themselves in jamaican society that's right and yep. and like uh, if you look at like the singers like uh, byron lee and whatnot and the dragonaires uh they were mostly made up out of um out of uh, people with, with with you know with oriental backgrounds as well mm-hmm. so they these people were very prominent in jamaican society um, at, at, at the time so um when you see dr no and you're not seeing you know like a bunch of rastafarians there's a reason why it's because of that um, yeah, there, there, there's some attempt to reflect the actual populace. Uh, when, when we get into the literary corner and we talk about the source material, I'll read from uh, the book, uh, Parker's book on Goldeneye and Fleming's Jamaica. I believe the actor that you're thinking of that Fleming wanted to hire for Bond was Richard Todd. Uh, no, it's not Richard Todd. Um, okay. anyway, it, it doesn't matter. I uh, Hoagie Carmichael. What? Hoagie Carmichael. Hoagie. Oh, yeah. Hoagie Carmichael. That's right. It's come That's to right. Now. He, that's right. I think he even described himself looking like Hoagie Mark Carmichael in one of the novels or something, right? Yeah, perhaps that's why I'm thinking it's Hoagie. Maybe maybe that's not Fleming's choice. But I know Fleming uh, was keen didn't on Vesper giving Lind, more. Yeah, didn't Vesper Lynn say he looked like Hoagie Carmichael or something? I remember there was a line in one of the books. Maybe. Maybe. Um, and he wanted Roger Moore uh, for the part. But, of course, he was tied up doing The Saint. Time, was he, Simon was Moore doing The Saint in 1962? Yeah. So he says he was never approached to play the role of Bond until 73. Because he appeared as Simon Templar on the television series The Saint, and this aired in the United Kingdom for the first time in October 1962, okay. only one day before the premiere of Doctor No. So he would have probably been already filming episodes while Doctor No was being the first couple episodes while Doctor No was being filmed, right? Yeah, and it's interesting. It was Connery. Connery brought more to the premiere of Diamonds Are Forever as his guest. Did you know that? Yes, that's I not, did not know that. No, yeah, that's yeah, that's uh, that was probably planned. I think it probably was. Um, it probably was planned, but it's neat, neat to think that you know, because yes, yeah, you know, one heralding in the other. Another person was who was also considered for the role of uh, Bond was Patrick McGowan. Oh wow! Yeah, because he was on a show called um, uh, what's the name the of prisoner. it here? No, oh. the prisoner was way after that. Yeah, that was, was late sixties. Same actor though. Danger Man. Danger Man. That was a show that he was on. Yeah. He played a character called John Drake. He was like a spy. Okay, and he turned cool. – and McGowan turned it down. Hmm. Yeah. And the name of the guy who won the contest uh, – yeah, sorry. I have the note here. Uh, his name was Peter Anthony, uh, 28 years old. Uh, what contest is this? This oh, is the contest. the one you were talking about 20 minutes ago. Yeah, exactly. Oh, okay. <laughs> sorry. I, no, yeah. really. I, I didn't know what you were on about. Oh, okay. Sorry about that. I was going back to what I was saying because uh, I just lost a note here because my computer scrolls in a really weird way. Um, anyways, it's one of those things where like you're scrolling, but it only shows like half the page you're going up towards. You can't, it's not scrolling line by line. It's just, just kind of, so you kind of miss things and go back a little bit to get other notes. But that's okay. That's okay. Uh, so for the Bond girl, Honey Ryder, the orphaned daughter of a marine biologist, 
uh, Julie Christie was was considered. I noticed it more and more. I always say Julie Christie's considered. Julie Christie's considered. She must have always yeah. been on the top of the list, eh? But for some um, reason, they always they always cut her off. It. She doesn't. Have, I don't really think she has a Bond girl vibe to me personally. I I, I, I don't know. She's too tragic. She usually plays like mm-hmm. tragic characters. Uh, but um, what happened one day is that uh, they didn't really settle on. They discovered Ursula Andress. Um, they were looking at pictures of, uh, of, of models and, and whatnot. And they came across one by, um, Ursula Anders's husband, John Derrick, who was a well-known photographer and actor. And they saw, uh, that was her then husband. Mm-hmm. And they saw the picture of Andres and they pretty much called her and asked her for the role right away. In an interview I saw with, um, Ursula Andres, um, she was saying how uh, she got the script and she wasn't sure on it. And then Kirk Douglas came over to to, to their house, uh, John Derrick and uh, Ursula Anders's house. And he basically got them all to start reading through the script. Everyone had a big party kind of just reading through the script and the lines. And the, Kirk Douglas said, you got to do this. You got to do this. And and so nervous, she went to Jamaica and uh, had to have basically have a, 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 had a, a whole body tan painted on her because she was like a white Swiss German actress, right? So she had to look like a, a like a native Jamaican who's been there for so long. She had to get a whole fake body tan, Trump style. I thought it was she Swiss or Swedish. She's Swiss German. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, you know, it's funny you mentioned John Derek. Derek was married to Ursula Andress. Yes, wasn't he also married to Bo Derek later in his career? That was his second wife, I believe. Well, he I thought he had three or four wives, like. Yeah, just, just I, thinking I, about this, he he married very beautiful women. Yeah, well, he was a good-looking guy, and he was a good photographer. Mm-hmm. Just, just uh, that, that, that was the life that he left. He led, right? I wonder if anybody's done any good work on him and his life story. <laughs> I, I'm sure it is. I'm sure. It's, yeah, I'm sure it's pretty interesting. It's almost like a classy Hugh Hefner kind of story. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, so she had, to, she had to do that to be more convincing as a Jamaican. But they didn't like her. Uh, even Peter Hunt said, and he said that, you know, like she, her accent was very good. She could speak English, but it was very thick accent. And uh, they wanted to get someone a little more sensual, a little bit of kind of like innocent in a way. And this a is more where this, girly. Girly. This is where this Nikki Vanderzil uh, dubbing started to happen with this mm-hmm. actress, Nikki Vanderzil, where they basically dubbed uh, not just, um, I would say, not just. Honey, who I think Nikki's voice worked for, I think, in that, in our capacity. But I don't understand why they would dub um, Eunice Gason, uh, who, who who plays Sylvia Trench in the film, with Nikki's voice. Because to they? me, yeah, because to me, like Eunice Gason and Sylvia Trench seems like she seems man hungry. She seems like a socialite out to party. That's right. And I I just don't think that's the right. I think like her own voice would have probably been been better for the role. Well, I mean, how did she sound? Do Do you have any recording of Eunice Gason? I, I listen to like her accent. She's very posh British. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, uh, you know, but I guess for some reason they want them to sound innocent, I suppose. Maybe it was, a, so, maybe it was a contract thing as well. Like maybe, maybe, uh, maybe Nikki would only work if uh, she could do a certain amount of hours or something. Maybe that's possible. And then they also gave her Domino. I think also Tanya in Tatania in um, for much of love and uh, Domino in, Th- in Thunderball, and I think the girls in Anna, You Only Live Twice was also dubbed over by Nikki. Wow. So, or, or, you know, maybe this was much more common at the time than it is now. I mean, certainly it was. And perhaps she was just really sought after. Maybe she's just really good at her job and they wanted to good use voice as much actor. of her as they could. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of have a bit of rumbling issue, rumbles, though, with like her like doing those. Now I realize kind of like how 
kind of fake the accent, the Japanese accents were on mm. the girls in you and the twice now. <laughs> anyway. I wonder, Josh, if it could have had something to do with the production cost. And you say there was only one sound editor on the film. If maybe True. This, this was a comfort thing for him that they, they would have less worry to do on the sets or on location with boom mics and stuff like that. That's absolutely a good, a good point to consider especially yeah and we know all about mic problems right so uh yes we do <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty funny so for dr no i mentioned they got joseph wiseman originally fleming wanted his buddy noel coward to play the role <laughs> and coward said a telegram to fleming no 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 <laughs> that's right no fucking chance yeah then fleming wanted christopher lee his step cousin to yeah, do the I role heard that as well and that could have worked out too uh, for for sure but i, I don't know i kind of like the attitude that Wiseman was uh, Christopher Lee would have been cool, but it also would have been very Hammer horror films, you know, like Fu Manchu or whatever. And I think Wiseman kind of gave it a little bit of a difference, in, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Well, he he gave something. I'm not I'm not quite sure we're going to see eye to eye on him, but we, yeah, when we get there, we'll we'll find out. Yeah, for sure. Young worked with Eunice Gason before, so that's why she was cast as uh, as Sylvia Trench. She was supposed to be in multiple Bond films, but she only ended up being in two of them. Okay. Um, for the role of Professor Dent, um, Terrence Young um, knew him as a stage actor in London. Um, if, you're, if you know your Hitchcock, Professor Dent played the murderer in um, Dial M for Murder. Yeah, I liked him in both films. Yeah. The whole scene, if you haven't seen Dial M for Murder, there's a whole scene where uh, Anthony Dawson's character, um, who's, really, who's, all, who's really good in Dr. No as well, uh, he just plays kind of creepy assholes so well. I, I, he, he just does it. In a, he has, he has a, a great... Um, way of of doing it that comes off almost like it's natural in in a way like the whole conversation of like the, of like the guy who wants to kill his wife talking to Anthony Dawson in Dial in for Murder and how it just goes from talking about some ad in the paper to cars to school mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden goes to can you kill my wife <laughs> like it's uh, just a very is it is it Ray Milland that Ray uh, Milland Ray Milland yes is that who Ray is? Milland yeah Ray Milland I'm I really, like him I quite yeah, like him he's got a great look. Yeah, he's he's cool. He's almost like an evil James Mason. Yeah, he well, I don't, James Mason can. Did you ever see James Mason star in the TV uh, production of Salem's Lot? He plays. Uh, he plays, oh no, he plays the vampires. Um, uh, what's his name? Oh God, he just refers to him as the master. You know, the master will be here soon. He opens up the antique shop for the master who comes later. I, I still feel robbed by um, uh, not having him as Drax. Ah, yeah. Uh, Mr. Barlow, that's his name. Mr. Barlow opens an antique shop in Salem's Lot. And this this man, I don't remember his name, but he goes to, to start and open the shop. And yes, uh, the master arrives. And of course, when the master does arrive, he's a big fucking vampire and he just fucking kills everybody. And so basically, so basically... The uh, master, it sounds like Buffy or something. That's hilarious. Yeah, but James Mason plays in Salem's Lot this kind of uh, gatekeeper you know, the kind of thing. Yeah. He's, yeah, he's really great. cool. And it's a late, it's a late career thing. It's like 78 or something, right? Bonnie oh. Bedelia is in that as well. It's a great adaptation of King's book. I would recommend you check it out. And Not it has day. some genuine scares, but I don't know if today's kids would think it's genuine. I, f- I was fucking freaked when I saw it as a kid. It's, you know, it's one of these, it's one of these films, right? That, that perfectly captures the atmosphere that you want, but maybe yeah. the prosthetics and the special effects are lame, but the atmosphere of, 
the the daytime kind of like Hellraiser. It's kind of like Hellraiser. Like Hellraiser is lame and terribly acted, but special effects are brown groundbreaking at the time. Well, I thought the acting was pretty good, man, in this film, to be honest. And J- I mean, come on, you add James Mason to any. Oh yeah, I, I think yeah. it's just great that Mason late in his career is wanting to do wanting to do a role like that. It's really cool. True, true, because true, true. He, you know, the classically trained uh, Oscar snubbed actor. Uh, I can't I can't recall if he did or not. Or maybe it was just nomination. I think he was snubbed. Anyway, it's just funny, you know, because he's got this this reputation of being quite proper and uh, in his performances, so yeah. very earnest and you know, blah, blah, blah. It's blah, almost, blah, like blah, Al- blah. almost like Alec Guinness doing a role like that almost in a way. Oh, kind it, of, yes. But it, here's, here he is because he's a, he's a stage Shakespearean actor and he takes yes. on – he takes on a Stephen King novel. Obviously, he was a fan of the source and was a fan yep. of the script and just wanted to... Well, maybe he was looking to pay his... It's almost like Chris, Christopher funds. Plummer. He did uh, yeah. need, uh, Needful Things too, right? That's right. Yeah. 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 Anyway, there you go. Or no, was that Plummer or was that Van Saito? Yeah, that was Van Saito. That wasn't Plummer. But yeah. it, it's not different to what McKinnon does, you know, and what yeah. uh, Patrick Stewart do. These guys who have real good acting chops and they just take different strange roles to make their life interesting. And I like Plummer. it. I, yeah, you know, I like that. So yeah, experimentation. For, anyway, for isn't sure. it funny? Hey, how many of these episodes come around to talking about James Mason or uh, who are it's we? Kind of... Who are we doing last? Uh, Jimmy Stewart. Well, was it Jimmy Stewart? Last Jimmy time, Stewart. Wasn't that? <laughs> Jimmy Stewart. Yeah. <laughs> there, there we go. Oh, so we got your Jimmy Stewart impression. We got your James Mason. Right. So who else of the of the Hitchcock Uber are we going to hear? Maybe uh, some Cary Grant or something like that. Yeah, uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have his accent down pat yet. <laughs> right, moving so do- back to Cubby's Corner, please. Yeah. So Dr. No uh, said, so they filmed in London. They filmed at Pinewood Studios for the sets of Canada May. We talked about how kind of cheap they were at the time and how with the budget that they used, but it worked well f- for them. Um, we talked about filming on location in Jamaica. They used the uh, Orca Vesa uh, Jamaica bauxite mine terminal uh, for do- for Dr. No's, uh, the exterior of Dr. No's fortress. Um when uh, Ken Adam and Sid Kane, uh, who went on credit as art director on the film, Ken Adam kind of took the laurels on that. And Sid Kane did also do the art direction for, for Marshall of Love. Um, they put together the dragon um, that uh, Dr. No uses to scare away people That's from right. Crab Key, which is basically a, tra- a, tra- a tractor with like a chassis over it um, with like a flamethrower at- a- attachment. Now I got some info on that. Do you want me to chip in? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. Now I'm going to read straight from one of these uh, one of these magazines that came along with the Bond car collection, right? That I uh, am a proud owner of. Uh, so before filming began, art director Sid Kane had to check that the Vansy swamp ground was stable enough to support the Dragon tank's heavy weight. "Quote: I didn't know how deep it was," said Kane, "and I thought the only way to find out is to wade in there." And it was awful. I sunk right down in the mud. Fortunately, Kane was accompanied by Bond stuntman Bob Simmons. Bob was taller than me, and I said, Bob, you better go on a bit further and see what it's like on the bottom, which he did. After struggling through the quagmire and being attacked by mosquitoes, the pair finally emerged from the swamp, and they were covered in leeches. I had to get rid of them, one by one with a cigarette. I had to burn them off, Kane recalls. But you know, I thought it was all part of being an art director. Now, Sid Sid Kane remembers Vansy Swamp as a pitch lake with wet trees sticking out of it. Other crew members were equally unimpressed. The swamps were awful, recalls Ursula Andres, who played Honey Rider. They were smelly. Worse still, sinkholes dotted the area. One wrong step and a crew member might sink neck deep in muck. To make the area passable for the dragon, Kane had to build a runway out of, out of railway sleepers. Though the dragon attack happens at night, the filmmakers shot during the day. 
but when the morning finally came for the dragon to be brought out, it promptly broke down. It didn't work, remembers Andres. A tractor had to be hastily brought in to drag the tank out of the mud. The dragon did eventually do its job, rumbling and belching fire through the swamp, and, however primitive, this menacing creation proved to be a trendsetter. As Ken Adam contends, it was, quote, really one of the first gadgets in a Bond film, end quote. It's almost like the um, the grandsire of the moon buggy. Yeah, and it was actually based, Josh, on swamp buggies that the producers had seen while scouting for locations in Florida. Ah, there you go. Yeah, swamp buggies. And Ian Fleming, years before, had also come across one of these sort of swamp buggies on a trip to Count Flamingos on Great Inagua in the Bahamas, which is part of the inspiration for the book, Dr. No, in protecting the Rosette Spoonbills. Oh, yeah. I remember, I forgot about that. The Rosette Spoonbills and all yeah. the guano. None That's of right. that was in the film. No. But there <laughs> no. you go. They dispense with the guano factory where the villain is uh, dr- doused in a pile of guano, uh, suffocated almost, I guess you could say. Um, uh, I'm kind of glad they, they did that. I don't think that would have paid off well on screen. Uh, probably not. No, it would have been a carry on film. Yeah, a carry on film. Yeah, exactly. carry or, a Benny on. Hill, or, or a Benny Hill film or something. But Carry on with the crab key. Yeah, exactly. Uh so we mentioned Bob Simmons. Uh, he was a stuntman, and this was kind of the first big role that he uh, he was the one. We talked about Terrence Young establishing style. Talk about Ken Adam establishing his sets. Well, this is Bob Simmons, you know, his stuntman coordinator uh, with all the action, all the stunt sequences. This is him establishing his style that would go on for the Bond films to continue. Very hard hitting, um, kind of just kind of like visceral action. Um, that, you know, punches and throws and, and everything like that. You know, Bob Simmons definitely cemented his style with Dr. No. Um, when they did the scene with the tarantula in the hotel room when Bond is asleep in his bed, uh, Bob Simmons was originally uh, covered over. Well, originally they had Connery covered in a protective glass between him and the spider. But then eventually they just got Bob Simmons in there and he had to basically do that stunt. And he said it was the most frightening stunt he ever performed. Even though the tarantulas, I think, are actually not poisonous, but anyway. Yeah, I, I didn't think they were either. No, but the millipede in the book was. That's or right, centip- the millipede was. But even that, like, I remember looking into it for the book episode that we did a little while ago, which we'll probably share after this one, to be honest. And yeah. I remember discovering then that very few millipedes actually uh, possess enough venom to to frighten, you know? And it's yeah. funny, I, you know, I would, to frighten? Did I just say that? To sting to, and to, to yeah, to, 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 to kill. To kill, yeah. And I I did hear, uh, what was I listening to recently? Anyway, this is not my observation. It was an observation of something I'd heard, or, oh, something I'd read, sorry, about how perhaps the reason why tarantulas were used here is because they were just preying on the popularity of the idea that they were poisonous from that Harry Belafonte song, The Deo Banana Boat Idea, <laughs> Black Tarantula. Nice. So, I, I mean, they, they are terrifying creatures if you don't like spiders. Like, I get it. Oh, I yeah. Get, I get the fear. I do. I get but... the fear. Yeah, absolutely. You don't want them on you. They even had a scene, too, where Honey Rider, like in the book, was, was tortured because she's tied down to the ground with these crabs. But the problem – and so that's the scene that you would have probably saw where Bond goes to find – to save Honey at the facility. But instead, he finds her about to be drowned instead. Mm-hmm. That's the right. reason why is because when they got those crabs out from the crates, they were frozen almost and half dead. So <laughs> the scene was a total disaster, uh, Well, <laughs> according to Peter Hunt. So that never happened. <laughs> it would have been a weird one anyway, because in the story, in, in the book, Honey Rider quite liked the crabs and she wasn't bothered by it. 
Yeah, exactly. But in, I guess in the book, in the movie, they want to scare people, right? So yeah. that was the whole point of that. Um, Which I now, suppose the, was the blind spot with the tarantula. Like they probably knew somebody on set or someone in their research would have known that these animals probably aren't going to hurt anybody. And if they bite, it's just going to be that, just a spider bite. However, I guess they were just like, they were, because it's a big thing, really. Dr. No gives Dent this thing and says, tonight tonight right you've got yeah, to do this so, tonight and so was he just trying before to frighten he puts Bond it off? in there i think so i don't know what's going to i think he was trying to i guess they they thought the audiences was would just believe not, that not, he would die would, yeah. believe that he would die yeah exactly it was a poisonous spider not necessarily a tarantula but it clearly was a tarantula based on our own knowledge of animals <laughs> yeah um yeah and also too is that the night that they're going to go and put the spider in there i guess the fail that was the fail safe because the first attempt was they were going to shoot him in the parking lot but then that car comes by and then yeah, that's they, right yeah they, they lose their aim, right? Yeah. So then, so then they were relegated to using this the spider. Um, I don't know. They could have easily done Bond the way they did. Did they did Strangways personally? But uh, oh well. <laughs> uh, and Bob Simmons too. This is when he filmed when they put a pinhole camera through a gun barrel, and this is when they filmed the famous James Bond gun barrel sequence for the first time. Bob Simmons stood in as Bond. And and Maurice Binder, uh, he had the pinhole camera ideal with the walk through the gun barrel, and uh, that was that was that was when that was used. It's kind of like the um, the iconic James Bond opening sequence that grabbed the world's attention right away. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it was pretty cool. It must be it must be something really cool back in the time when you first saw it. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, objectively so. Yeah, because if you were a James Bond fan of the novels, then you're sitting. If you're a fan of the novels, then you go see that movie and you're going like, okay, this is pretty cool so far. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To go on to another thing about the production as well would be the soundtrack. Um, this is really key as well because um, there's always this kind of ambiguity, like who created the James Bond theme? Was it Monty Norman or was it John Barry? And Monty Norman is the one that came up with the melody. Um, it, he actually got it from when, one of the plays that he did called uh, House for Mr. Biswas. Mm-hmm. Based on a V.S. Naipaul novel, which is yeah. an awesome book, by the way. Really good uh, piece of literature. I recommend it. Yeah. So Broccoli liked his work from a play that he saw that Monty Norman um, scored called Bell, which is about a murderer named Holly Harvey Crippen. And he was only okay. known for four musicals, but he wanted him, but he wasn't sure. So um, Broccoli says, well, come down to Jamaica, bring your, bring your wife, you know, have a good time. And and so he did. And so he did. And, and so, you know, he got right, right into it. The big band sound working with Byron Lee and the Dragonairs, the local Jamaican band, um, putting those Calypso melodies, uh, writing the original Bond uh, composition. Uh, but then John Barry, who had his band, uh, they basically got a hold of Norman's tune and they gave it that big band feel. They put in like the electric guitar more distorted, you know, like to give it the kind of the, the right feel. So it was kind of a combination of both Norman and Barry that cemented the James Bond song, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, Monty seems, Norman seems wrote to be the, the theme. Yeah, he wrote the theme, but, but it or, was it was orchestrated by Barry and by Barry, and that's, and I mean that's it. Like what you hear, the swinginess of it, that that's all Barry. Yeah, there's there's no doubt anymore. I don't believe that this is Monty Norman's James Tune. Bond melody. But yeah, the swinginess of it, the electric sort of. Uh, As uh, Barry says here, uh, bebop swing vibe coupled with with that vicious, dark, distorted electric guitar, definitely rock and roll. It represented everything about the character you would want. It was cocky, swaggering, confident, dark, dangerous, suggest suggestive, sexy, unstoppable, and he did it in two minutes. 
Yeah, I'm sure he never tired of telling people that either, Barry. I'm I'm sure he didn't. But yeah, I mean it's they they had a lot of fight over this. And I'm sure. Oh yeah, it went legal. Yeah, and Barry lost because the melody was written by Monty Norman, but everything else, the flavor, the the color, the texture, the the you know the, the jazz, as you say, the the rock and roll Vic Flick sort of guitar riff, that was all John Barry's touch, because Barry's quintet was kind of rocking that type of vibe right at the time when he wasn't orchestrating for film. Yeah, it seems kind of broccoli. Like just saw Monty Norman. He had a play, and he said, "Oh, I like this music," and he got Monty Norman onto it. When really he probably should have got like John Barry from the beginning, and just you know didn't have him do the whole score, and that would they wouldn't have got that whole ruckus. But at the same time, he wouldn't have the James Bond theme. So true. It, yeah, despite you know the battles that occurred with it, um, uh, it was worth it. You know. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's just too bad that they couldn't have had a more harmonious collaboration. That's true. I definitely agree. A more harmonious collaboration than uh, AHA and John Barry anyway. <laughs> probably about the same. <laughs> yeah, probably. Um, so we also hear other music, like the Calypso music in the opening uh, scene um, after the the main credits, uh, Three Blind Mice. It's a, kind of a, a Calypso version of that song. Then we talked about already Byron, um, Byron Lee, uh, the, the Jump Up song. This played in the background um, underneath the mango tree, which is a traditional J- Jamaican Calypso song uh, that was sung by Diana Copland, who was at the time Monty Norman's wife. So that wasn't written for the film. No, it wasn't. And the singing voice of Honey Ryder is also Diana Copland as she walked out of the ocean. Exactly. Yeah. OK. Yeah. So, yeah. So uh, definitely Jamaica, the, uh, its style, its music, its culture was all over um, Dr. No. Um, one thing to point out is that our Cayman Islander, uh, Larry Fitzmiller, who played Coral, he was an American um, actor working in the UK. That's what it was. He was like a expatriate who lived in the UK. I guess he got like got a, he got a lot of work out there. Um, another person too, uh, also in the important of the cast was uh, Felix Leiter, uh, was played by Jack Lord of. Now we everyone knows Jack Lord from Hawaii Five O, but um, this was the first Leiter. Um, and he did not appear in the original novel, but decided to introduce him, which is, again, a testament to Saltzman and Broccoli's world building that they're trying to do with this Bond franchise. Mm-hmm. And an ambitious touch he, is good. Lord actually was asked to return in Goldfinger as Felix Leiter, but he wanted more money. Uh, he wa- And he wanted better billing as well. Didn't and he? so he, he was replaced instantly with uh, Seek Linder. Uh, good old Cease, the Canadian. Yeah. I, I don't know. I kind of think Goldfinger would even, would, would even better with Jack Lord as Felix Leiter. <laughs> Yeah, I like Jack Lord. I think he was well cast, and uh, him and Hedison are probably my favorite lighters after um, Jeffrey Wright. Probably, I liked C. Slender as well, though. I thought he had a nice charm about him. He was he was he was good. He was a bit old. He was a bit too old for me, but he wasn't as bad as the one in Diamonds Are Forever. I hated that Felix Slater. <laughs> he was like he was like a bus driver. <laughs> yeah. Well, on on that note, shall we drive on over to Critical Reception? Yeah, let's uh, see how the. Um, uh, original audiences um, paid heed to Dr. No. The budget of Dr. No, as you said a few minutes ago, was $1 million or 1100000 if you want to be exact, I guess, huh? Okay, yeah, yeah. Given the extra hundred grand that they got from the British arm. That's right. 
and that equates in today's money to about 8 million, something like that. Worldwide box office was 60 million and that's about 470 million in today's money. So the return on investment for Dr. No, 5,857%. This is the most lucrative film in the series, bar none. I can see that, especially with, with the budget that they had. Mm -hmm. It was a big hit in the UK, and then in the spring of 63, it was a big hit uh, in uh, in the United States. Yeah. Well, 95% uh, fresh on Rotten Tomatoes with the critics and 82% fresh with the audiences. And I'm going to start off my review section today with a reviewer that we've read before here on the show. This is W. Ward Marsh from the Cleveland Plain Dealer. And he writes... The Ian Fleming cult should feel that producers Saltzman and Broccoli have done all in their power to give proper translation and characterization, color, sex, etc., to the initial screen version of the author's book, Dr. No. It reads like a serial and plays the same way, quite as if it were several chapters of genuine cliffhanger compressed into one feature picture. The action is there, as rapid as the movement of a flapping window blind in a hurricane. Wisely, an unknown has been selected to play 007, rightful killer James Bond of the British secret intelligence. Since Fleming was in British naval intelligence during the war, and since every place he describes in all ten of his furious novels is most exacting, both Bond and Fleming know whereof they act. Dr. No was filmed in Britain and Jamaica, and while I'm quite sure the shapely Ursula Andress has not had her nose broken, she does fit honey in all other respects, and what respects. Sean Connery is the properly cold at killing times and hot at other times hero. His interpretation is that of a calculating, fearless spy who occasionally flares into violent and deadly actions. The comparisons and contrasts in his characterization should keep him in full stardom for the filming of the entire series. The next will be from Russia with Love. Connery is lean, rangy, lithe as a boxer or even a panther. Most of the time his face belongs to a human sphinx, a characteristic which makes all the more effective his ability to cope with positively unconquerable dangers. Joseph Wiseman, one of the fine actors who too seldom is given opportunity to appear on our screen, creates the title role with all its super intelligent and lethal qualities. John Kitzmiller is excellent as Quarrel, the Jamaican guide who goes as far with Bond on the Bauxite Island, originally the mining was for guano, as the story permits. And John Kitzmiller, sorry, uh, my notes are terrible. Sorry, John, you were great in the movie. I did not mean to dishonor you that way. <laughs> and he gives his role the full color and meaning of native of the major island. The direction support is very strong. The scenic investitures, great. The opening titles, fascinating. The Bond theme, most fitting when the hero is in danger. To be sure, this is not entirely a literal translation of the original. That would not be possible. But, do, but Dr. No is on the screen in all its terrifying and most of its sexy aspects. No giant squid. No giant squid. Nope. No millipede. No rebel rousing at the colonial house really either. No, none of that either. Uh, review number two coming from a more contemporary source. This is James Berardinelli, who we've cited here on the show before. His review from Real Views. Barring a television adaptation of Casino Royale in the 1950s, not to be confused with the 1967 movie of the same name, 1962's Dr. No was the first opportunity fans of Ian Fleming's James Bond had to watch the intrepid super spy in action. However, producer Saltzman and Broccoli wanted their movie to appeal to a wider audience than just Fleming's readers. To that end, 
They altered the 007 of the novels to better fit the screen. Bond became more suave and witty, less cold-blooded. Nevertheless, the hero of Dr. No is still grittier than he would become by Goldfinger, released only two years later, and bears very little resemblance to the version of Bond essayed by Roger Moore beginning in 1973. Although many have rightly commented that Dr. No, the movie, is one of the closest cinematic interpretations of any Bond novel in tone and plot, Sean Connery was not among Fleming's choices to play 007. That didn't stop the public from immediately embracing him, and after just one movie in what was to become cinema's longest-running series, he was regarded as the definitive Bond. Today, even after four others have taken the role, stalwart Connery fans view George Lazenby, Roger Moore, Timothy Dalton, and Pierce Brosnan as imposters. This review, by the way, was written before Craig took up mantle. Story-wise, story-wise, Dr. No isn't all that different from most of the Bond plot lines, although it's a little more bare-bones. With the exception of the big explosion during the film's finale, Dr. No is a low-key adventure. There are no gadgets forcing Bond to rely on his ingenuity. In one scene, he needs to breathe while submerged. He uses hollowed-out reeds as air tubes. The single car chase is reasonably straightforward, and for the only time in the series, 007 is unmistakably brutalized, appearing bloody, beaten, and disheveled as a result. Regardless, he still defeats the villain and gets the girl. Many elements of the Bond formula are present in their infancy here. Maurice Binder does the opening titles, although they lack the flair of his later contributions. The James Bond theme, co-created by Monty Norman and John Barry, although exactly who is responsible for the bulk remains a topic of contention to this mm -hmm. day, peppers an otherwise unmemorable score. M and Moneypenny make their screen debuts, and the first and perhaps best remembered Bond girl, Ursula Andress, sets a standard that hasn't wavered in more than 30 years. All in all, Dr. No is a successful, if not superlative, motion picture tame by the standards of the later productions, it's an entertaining look back in movie history at a project that developed into a worldwide phenomenon. So, going back... Lots of modern um, reviews so far. More modern, yeah, I mean, uh, that's that's a more modern, but only up in so far, only up to when Brosnan was doing the role. Okay. Now we've got something more contemporary of the time. This is a blurb, and it is just that, a blurb from McLean's magazine, written by Clyde hmm. Gilmore. Okay. This is the first of Ian Fleming's droll, nasty, and absorbing spy thrillers to reach the screen. It augurs well for the future of the series. A rugged Scot with an Irish name, Sean Connery, plausibly portrays the indestructible James Bond, British secret agent 007, a tough and amorous sophisticate who, who believes that every sweater girl should have the wool pulled over her eyes. <laughs> Bond's title role antagonist, played in the style of Fu Manchu by Joseph Wiseman, formerly of Montreal, is a part Chinese scientist plotting havoc from his private atomic plant in the Caribbean. Ursula Andress, Zina Marshall, and Eunice Gason are prominent among our beleaguered hero's playmates. So now that would be indicative, I think, of, of what you would call a review brief. Yes. The sort of thing that would tell you what's at the cinema without really going into much detail. Yeah, exactly. Just what to expect kind of a right. thing. So we've got uh, one contemporary review, which was quite excited by the grit of the film and I kind of understood that much of the material that the censors would go after of the books didn't make it into the celluloid. And we've got something a little bit more contemporary, at least into the 90s. But, you know, people like this film. It's really, really difficult to get a contemporary, objective, critical review of this film because it, it, it almost it almost needs to be compared to the rest of the series. Do you know what I mean? Yes, I agree. Yeah, it's 
for, for sure, because it's where all these tropes began. And so if you're having any kind of way of judging the James Bond films, Dr. No is has all those tropes all in at once. So it kind of makes it almost difficult to criticize in a way, because it, in the sense of comparing to all to comparison to the other James Bond films, you know, and, and ranking them. That's right. And it was so short on budget, comparatively speaking. And, you know, it, it was trying to adapt the book and trying to work through the censors and trying to create, as you said, the world building environment that would preserve and promise the future. But that world building too, like one of the actors that was cast uh, was one of Terrence Young's uh, mainstays was Lois Maxwell, who was an MGM star in the 50s. And but she also worked with Terrence Young and the, and the studios uh, for several films. And she was actually offered um, a role in Dr. No. Um, Terrence Young said, you can either play Money Penny or you can play Sylvia Trench. Um, and when she read the script about the whole thing about when Bond arrives at his apartment and Sylvia Trench is just wearing like, you know, very, um, immodest clothing, I guess you could say, uh, she, she said that was too sexual for her. So she went with Moneypenny instead. Ah, right. And even back in the day when she was making a film for Terrence Young in the fifties, um, there was a role that she wanted to get the main lead star role. And there, and she was one of the containers with this other, with this other actress who I couldn't get the name of because it was just like in some uh, documentary that I saw and uh, Lois Maxwell um, was told by Terrence Young and she asked him did I get the role and he said uh, no darling Um, the the girl that we got for the role she smelled of sex but you smell of soap (laughs) (laughs) really yeah yeah (laughs) yeah I mean what do you do is that a compliment you dick like what do you sell what are you telling Uh me I don't know. I, I think Terrence the Young would be a bit of an ass there, but he was probably doing it kind of like tongue in cheek. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, just giving her his honest opinion, I guess, on what happened there. I suppose. Well, the Turnstiles agreed with this movie, and the ticket sales were hot, very hot. This film became a phenomenon, not perhaps to the extent and breadth of Goldfinger, which really catapulted the series, but in terms yes. of money made and in terms of safeguarding production for the future, Dr. No was an enormous success with audiences, and it, it, it allowed, really, James Bond to take flight. Yeah, you couldn't, I couldn't say it better myself. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, we're only looking at a very, very shallow sample size of reviews. But, you know, yes. trust us when we say that people liked the movie. The Vatican did not like the movie, by the way. Um, and they don't like not... anything. <laughs> they don't like anything. No, they like hoarding treasures. Oh, absolutely. And, <laughs> they do and like that. Yes. And I've, I've just read a book on the Medici, so believe me, I know a lot of the stuff about what the, the Vatican was up to. <laughs> I bet you do, yeah. Why aren't there any people armies anymore? That's what I'm always wondering. What have happened to people armies? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they're out marching around trying to find Wellington's portrait. Possibly. Right. Well, look, that was a shortened, um, but I think necessarily so, a shortened critical corner. Uh, just kind of playing into a little bit of what you were doing with the production. And now it's time for us almost to get talking about Dr. No and our opinions of it. But first, we've got your plot summary. We we sure do.
so the very first James Bond film gets to the point, point blank, that is, as we go from the gun barrel sequence to the opening titles, which is set against, fittingly so, Monty Norman's James Bond theme, played by John Barry's big band orchestra. The Bond theme's distorted guitar takes us into some Calypso music. The colorful light bright dots transition to silhouettes of dancers jamming out to the Calypso beats. We then get a reggae version of the Three Blind Mice. The Three Blind Mice, we see patrol Kingston Town from the dirty side roads to the exclusive Queen's Club, a.k.a. where rich white people play cards and other waspy stuff. At one of the tables, a card game has just finished a hand, and one of the players, Strangways, gets up for his daily call to the boss. He walks into the parking lot to access the station wagon where the Three Blind Mice gun him down with silent pistols. Strangway's perforated corpse is then pulled into a dark hearse by the three black by the three blind mice who then drive off to do some more carnage. Stringway's secretary is at the house using a radio hidden in a bookcase to contact MI6. Back across the pond, the MI6 radio operators are trying to heed her message, but she's cut off abruptly when the three blind mice empty their silencers into her. There's fake blood everywhere and she is pulled away with the radio chirping to respond. This is all very serious stuff especially with the dun-dun music when one of the mice steals a fold folder marked Crab Key and another folder marked Dr. No. The man in charge of the communications room in London speaks to his officer about the cutoff, and he is soon making a call upstairs. Cut to Le Circa Club when a, when a company man, Gopher, who kind of resembles the 12th Doctor, requests for Mr. James Bond flaunting the Universal Exports business card. A tracking shot brings us into the Le Circa, where a game of Chemin de Fer is in full swing. A beautiful socialite, Sylvia Trench, is at the table, sitting next to what looked to be Bob Newhart, playing against Sylvia, not Bob, someone that the camera and editor keeps cutting around to prevent us from seeing his face. <laughs> is this Dr. No? No, it is not. But I have the goosebumps as the hands end to Miss Trench's opponent's favor. When she asks for his name, we have the first appearance of, one, of the one and only 007, and he utters those immortal words. Want to Netflix and chill? <laughs> no, seriously, that's what he said. I'll send screenshots to prove it. Anyway, Connery just debuted Bond as an alpha male god full of swagger, showing great game and throwing shade at the same and making smoking actually look cool. He makes plans with Miss Trench while collecting his winnings, tipping 100s to the casse and the doorman and handing the lady his card before leaving. Bond, James Bond, indeed. Bond arrives at Universal Exports and we have the first on-screen meet cute with Moneypenny and the premier celluloid tete-a-tete with Bernard Lee's M. The brief, someone is toppling the American Cape Canaveral rockets. I'm going to follow the word toppling at the back of my mind because it's a cool way of saying some crazy-ass mofo is using a radio beam to send American rockets off target and shit. Anyway, back to the assignment. Strangways just got set up with a new secretary recently. Is the, is the MI6 man in Jamaica working with Felix Slater of the CIA? He's disappeared, including the secretary. His mission, if we choose to accept it, is to find out what happened to Strangways. Before Bond heads off to his first silver screen assignment, M calls Major Boothroyd, a.k.a. Q, before Desmond was cast. M doesn't want Bond to use his favorite piece, a Beretta, because he nearly got bodied when it jammed. Boothroyd, or Armorer, as he, as he is called, mocks his Beretta in that low-key British way, basically says it's a pussified shooting instrument. Uh, that's more of Charlie Utter of Deadwood's words, not mine, but anyways. And sets Bond up with an iconic Walther PPK. Cool. M wants Bond to leave the Beretta and cut short any more flirting with Moneypenny with a quick intercom cock block. Moneypenny is left to hold the empty case for the Walter PPK. Cool. Bond arrives at his apartment only to find it occupied by Sylvia Trench, wearing only the top half of his pajamas, using his indoor putting set. Some people have porn. Real men have this. Bond is ready to pack and leave, but Miss Trench wants to have their date a little earlier than planned. 
Bond arrives in Kingston, Jamaica. A local photographer with an epicanthic makeup snaps his picture with a camera as he exits the airport and collects his luggage. A shady guy with a pompadour and sunglasses is observing his every move, and the photogra- photographer keeps doing his doing her thing. Bond also steals a taxi from two stewardesses. He's kind of a prick here, but there's a chauffeur waiting for him. A Mr. Jones from Government House. Bond smiles and heads back to the terminal and calls Government House. Nope, they didn't send a car. No fuss, no muss and all that. Bond smiles malevolently and returns to the chauffeur, asking him to take him for a ride. The shady sunglass dude hops into a car with another dude and begins to follow Bond's convertible out of the terminal and onto the highway to Kingston. Mr. Jones starts speeding and Bond inquires why. They're being followed. All right, then lose them. Car goes faster. Bond orders the driver to take a sharp right, and as the driver recovers from his discombobulation, he finds a pistol in his back. He tries to reach for his own gun, but epic fail in all sorts of ways. Bond, Bond slaps Mr. Jones around a bit and threatens him to talk. Mr. Jones complies, but asks for a cigarette. Bond goes to light it for him, but Mr. Jones chows down on it instead. Whatever floats your boat, Mr. Jones. Aye, indeed. Apparently, cyanide floats his boat, or floated his boat, past yeah, that, tense. That's like commitment to the cause, eh? Indeed. The fear that Dr. No puts into people, eh? I know. Bond real. arrives at Government House and leaves the late Mr. Jones with the guard. Bond gets a lowdown from Government House. Strangway's in the Queen's Club crowd who saw him last. The commissioner takes him up to Strangway's place where there's bloodstains but no bodies. There's a picture of Strangway's and who Bond recognizes as the driver of the car that was following Mr. Jones. His name is Quarrel. He's a Cayman Islander who was taking Mr. Strangway's out and about the Caribbean. There's also a receipt for a geologist services, dent laboratories. Or laboratories. Nah, I think laboratories. Yeah, that's the British way, right? Yeah. This is Chekhov's slip-up number one. Bond takes in his hotel room, receives his first double seven martini, and with the use of talcum powder and a string strand and a strand of hair, spy proofs his room. He leads he heads to the Queen's Club with Cradle Smith, the government house dude, and and meets Stringway's crowd. It includes an old Indian Army colonel who clearly crawled out of Kipling, and Professor Dent, a metallurgist. <laughs> Dent tells Bond that the new secretary was quite a looker. Chekhov's slip-up number two. Bond heads down to Kingston Pier and amongst the quays locates Quirrell with the help of a local. Quirrell is painting his boat, the boat they took Strangways around the coastline with. Quirrell's standoffish at first, so Bond follows him to a local tiki bar owned by one Pussfella. At the bar, Quirrell feints friendliness and urges Bond to talk it out in the back room. Quirrell pulls a switchblade and Pussfella wrestles him from behind. Bond gets the advantage and tosses Pussfella and sends Quirrell down with his pistol. But Pompadour in Shades has a gun on his back, not, but not to worry. This is Felix Leiter, CIA, and Quirrell and Pussfella work for the CIA as well. Cut to a jiving Jamaican dance club, the tiki bar at night full of customers. Pussfella walks around like he's Henry Hill, and we find Bond, Leiter, and Quirrell <laughs> chilling at a table as the party goes on around them. Leiter's all gung-ho about preventing more toppling. Quirrell talks about where he brought Strangways on their fishing trips. Strangways has been collecting rock samples off various islands. Except Crab Key. Why not Crab Key, Bond asks, but before he gets the answer, Flashbulb Girl is back. Bond has Quirrell bring her, see Manhandle, to the table, and she is defiant, saying she works for the Daily Gleaner. Then she's saying she's freelance. Her story keeps changing. Bond simply steals her film and exposes it. She calls them all rats and storms off. Ha ha. Later says that Crab Key is owned by a Chinese character named Dr. No. Dun dun dun. Bum bum bum. Bond returns to his hotel room to find fingerprints and missing strand of hair. Remembering the geologist, Billing Strangways, received from Dent Labs, he visits Professor Dent, who is an obvious liar. Strangways wanted him to look into the mineral samples he found, but Dent says he threw them away because there was nothing worthwhile. Apparently, Strangways was a rock collector. 
Check out slip up number three. Mm-hmm. Bond leaves Dent to his own devices. Meanwhile, Dent heads off into panic to the pier where he commandeers a motorboat ferry to Crab Key. Once embarked from the ferry, he walks down the jetty to a bauxite mine where the guards lead him to an enclosed chamber with a big dome in the ceiling. Thanks, Ken Adam. A menacing voice, obviously Dr. No, delivers some cliche villain dialogue a la Dr. Claw, chews Dent out for his incompetence and orders him to take care of Bond. He orders Dent to leave with a new assassination tool, a tarantula in a cave. Bond arrives back at his hotel, and unbeknownst to him, his life is saved by some asshole high-beaming as he flies past the hotel, blinding the three blind mice enough so they can't properly aim at Bond from the parking lot of the hotel. At the hotel reception desk, the concierge lady treats her local Jamaican bellboy like shit as she asks him to deliver the message left for Mr. Bond. He also has a car ordered for him. Bond returns to his hotel room and settles down to bed when his sleep is really interrupted by dense tarantula. Good thing there was a glass pane between Bond and the non-poisonous spider the entire time. <laughs> Bond, of course, plays it as cool as possible for one of those circumstances and waits for the right moment to smash that spider into goo. At the government house next day, he is asking about Crab Key to Pradel Smith, but their secretary, a Miss Tarot, cannot, fi- cannot find the Crab Key or Dr. No file. Bond has an inkling when after picking up the, the box-shaped package that was left for him, leaves the office to find Miss Tarot crouched by the door, obviously listening to the whole convo. He plays an elaborate trap with Miss Tarot. He allows Miss Tarot to play her part to allow him to ask him out to dinner. Back at the dock, it's revealed that the package is Geiger counter, and those samples from Crab Key were definitely radioactive. Check up slip-up number four. He allows Miss, he allows Miss um, Bond, Felix, and Quirrell set plans to leave tonight, but first time for some fun. At the hotel, he... Uh, talks with her, talks to Miss Tara over the phone, and she asks him to come up to, up to her place in the mountains. Bond drives a convertible to her house, and on the way, three blind mice in their death hearse uh, try to run him off the road. However, a slight miscalculation in height regarding the tractor arm transforms them into a flaming hearse of death as they plumb down the cliffside of the, to their deaths. Bond arrives at Miss Tarot's where she's surprised to see him. Ha! Then Bond becomes a complete douche, but she's evil, so who cares, right? He seduces her. She lets him, of course, having just talked on the phone to probably Professor Dent, but he's going to be here for a while. Post-sex, Bond is feeling musical in Italian, doesn't want Miss Tarot to have dishpan hands. She wants to stay in. Fuck it, I'll call a cab instead. Cab arrives, and Miss Tarot is escorted nail varnish and all inside its cabin when it, where an officer is waiting. Bond then pays off various Shekhov's guns on the part of Professor Dent. He leaves Juicy Bait, himself in the guise of a few pillows under the sheet, for Dent. Bond sits in the dark place, playing dark in the dark in the corner, playing solitaire, while Dent empties his pistol into the lumpy figure beneath the covers. He guns Dent down in cold blood. Hardcore. Bond arrives a bit late after screwing over Dent so completely, and the trio heads out in a speedboat, pulling Quirrell's sailboat just off Crab Key. Lighter slows down, and Bond and Quirrell hop onto the sailboat. Bond tells Felix to have his Marines ready, while Felix reiterates the timetable as effing nigh for the next missile launch. Late in the evening, Bond and Quirrell arrive at Crab Key and take shelter as soon as they arrive. Bond suggests they get some sleep, only he makes to the, awakes to the sound of a girl singing. Emerging like Botticelli's Venus from the surface, Honey Ryder, an orphan daughter of a marine biologist who is collecting shells. She sells seashells at the seashore. In Miami, anyway. <laughs> for so 50 bucks. Bond, for 50 bucks. So while Bond sings like he's in a musical and stands awkwardly next to this tan white girl in a bikini with a knife-equipped diving belt, the sound of an engine can be heard. Dr. Knows patrol boat! They pepper the beach with machine gun fire, but Bond, Quirrell, and Honey take cover until they pass. The bullets take out Quirrell and Honey's boats, and they retreat into the interior of an island, of the island. Soon moving through the jungle swamp, they find a team of uh, men and dogs after them. Like a Bugs Bunny cartoon, they conceal themselves underwater, snorkeling with with a reed for air. The dog team bypasses them, except for one. Bond promptly takes care of the poor bastard. Why? Honey asks, disgusted. You ask this who put a black widow spider in their rapist bed? Okay, well, that guy definitely deserved it. Honey's sure her father was killed somewhere on the island, and her only education is the encyclopedia up to R. Um... Okay, I guess. <laughs> Don't know if that would stand as GED, but it's better than most, I guess. So Crab Key gets, keeps visitors at bay with a dragon. 
Sean Connery scoffs at this, not pressing enough to realize he'll be voicing one someday. That's right, yeah. It's true, the truth, the dragon is just a tractor <laughs> with a chassis over it, flamethrower attachment. As it approaches across the muddy marsh, Bond and Quirrell take cover and shoot at it. Quirrell panics. Too much rum, man, and keeps shooting in a way, in a, in a way where the writing pretty much forces him to be incinerated by the dragon's death. As Quirrell burns, the, the dragon halts and dudes and dudes with machine guns in spacesuits drag Bond and Honey to Dr. No's lair, where they undergo an elaborate de- decontamination procedure. Yeah, really elaborate. Yes, the conveyor belt of uh, <laughs> gradually decreasing clothes. Uh, once the coast is clear, they are brought to a contamination center, re-prison, that is attended by two Chinese nuns. They're given swell rooms. Nice job, can Adam, but the coffee has spiked. As they sleep away in their beds, Dr. No pays them a visit. Creepy. Who, who puts them in their beds? I like, guess the nuns. Who, who the nuns do. That's uh, yeah. okay. I mean... Now awakened, Bond and Honey dress for dinner with Dr. No. Scary smiley nun has confirmed this. Dr. No's chambers are typical Ken Adam Bond villain decor. Big windows, lots of rocks and antiques. Dr. No finally arrives, a German-Chinese criminal mastermind all in white with black metal claws. They have dinner and it's basically Dr. No telling everyone how awesome he is. Oh, and he works for some organization called Spectre. Never heard of it, Bond says, continuing to antagonize. Dr. No takes Honey away and his guards pulverize Bond while he attends the rocket launch in his control room. Bond awakes in a cell, manages to bust electrically charged grade to get into the ventilation shaft, avoids random delusions of hot water because they were from the original script from based on the novel and they never had a really chance to work, it, work that out, and finds himself in Dr. Noah's mission control room. He sabotages the rocket launch piece by piece in one of the spacesuits that he commandeered from a probably dead guard. Bond is stealthy enough that he is able to take control of the reactor and overheat it, disrupting the launch. Dr. No comes at him with claws. They fight. Dr. No tears a bond as he, can get, he can, but the lift is descending into the reactor fluid. Dr. No tries to hang on, but his metal claws don't compensate for shit, and he scrapes his way down to the girder to his death. Bond bails out just in time, finds out from the evil nuns where honey is being kept. He finds her trapped down in a sea outlet that is about to flood and drown her. Sadistic, Dr. No. He frees Honey and they make a run for it. The bauxite mine explodes around them and they skirt down the quay and, the com- and commandeer a small motorboat to freedom. Only a soon out of gas. But lo, here comes Felix and his marines who tossed him a line to take them back to Kingston. Instead, they refer to have sex on a probably provisionless motorboat in the middle of the ocean. So yeah, James, enjoy that wooloo soon when sharks have you <laughs> surrounded and the midday sun is blistering both of you to pieces. Or maybe, or maybe Felix will just stop the boat and just wait for them to do what they got to do. This guy in dames, I tell you. Well, he does seem quite content to just stop and yeah. let him do what he's going to do. I wonder if he's going to like, oh, yeah, we'll give them a few moments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know about a few moments, but anyways. Uh, yeah, so that's my summary on Dr. No. Nice work. Right, BFG, let's get down to business. Let's talk Dr. No. Let's go underneath the mango tree. Mm-hmm. Now, let's start by picking out some, some scenes that we liked. Okay, I'll start. The entire segment regarding uh, Bond's trip to Miss Tarot's house, the, um, the plan of him getting ambushed on the road by the three blind mice in their black car, the car chase involved with that, uh, despite, you know, the use of a of a um, drum screen in some sequences there. Mm-hmm. It was still pretty uh, tense. Yep. And then the whole build up to him, like being a complete douche to her during the entire period. Like Connery was just on fire in that sequence. Like he was just like, that was the Fleming bond to me. Just absolutely just like 
uh, he knew exactly what he was doing. He, he was he was like a cat batting his mouse prey around in, in that whole sequence. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's a good analogy. I agree with you. I thought that the char- yeah. the characterization in that segment was fantastic. Uh, Bond knows at this point. He knows that Taro has betrayed him. He yeah. he's, he's figured that out. By the way, and, that- and he's a dick about it too, right? But he's still not giving away that he knows that she that that he's onto her at the same time. Yeah. yeah. Like she just thinks this guy is just another asshole. You know what I mean? That's right. Yeah, totally. She's but- probably thinking like I can't. Wait till Den shows up and puts a bullet in between his eyes. But uh, I, I love the the manner with which he calls the cab and then throws her in the back with the officer and then goes and sits down and deals out the cards. Like it is, yes. like you say, it's a really good the whole section. setup. The whole setup and just to how uh, uh, how like Young shot it. The the the, the uh, like the, the the door of the room swinging open and you just see the hand with the the silencer and it you know it fires at six shots into the bed. Mm-hmm. And then, 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 and then, of course, the whole re- reversal of roles in that sequence, where Bond guns a person down in cold blood. I read that in the original intention; they did not really want. There were two ways they're going to do that scene. Um, they were going to do it so that Dent gets captured, or Bond kills him in cold blood. And they went with the latter because it was much more Fleming, and uh, I guess, and, and true to James Bond as a character. So by having the Terence Young swagger uh, given to Connery for Bond. For um, and all other kind of sophistication that they gave the character, the way that he was at like the at the club handing out the money to people, that veneer of sophistication, and then you lead up to that moment where he's playing with Miss Tarot. He's kind of like a passive aggressive, but he's also you can see the darkness under under there, kind of brimming brimming to the top. Yeah. And then you have that sequence where he only he earns as um, as Terrence Young says his double O status by. You know, gunning Dent down because that that in a way is James Bond begins more so than even Casino Royale was because that was how they that's how he came alive to audiences in that one movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with you. I think you're right there. So I think that's a seminal scene in, in, in probably the entire Bond series, but in particular Doctor No, it's like that whole sequence is my is is my favorite part. Um, I actually like to be honest, like up until uh, Crab Key, uh, a lot of Doctor No works for me very well. Okay, cool. I I have issues with the crab key. There's parts I really like about it, but we'll and I, and then parts I don't like about it. But we'll get to that. Well, let let's let's get into it. I mean, I don't think we need to go through this chronologically. We've already kind of talked about the title sequences. We talked about what we liked there with the opening credits. Uh, Maurice Bender did do a nice job uh, creating, you know, for the, for a first touch. What he did, we've got that sort of gun barrel thing working. I mean, I I, th- I think that the the beginning of this film works well. It is it kind it is kind of strange, maybe jarring a little bit. Well, it, I don't think it is jarring. It's only jarring in comparison to the cold open pre-title sequences that we we have of the the, the yeah. now Bond. It's um it, it works for the film. I think it it works to have the three blind mice because they are, the, you know, they are plot important. It's a good twist because if if you haven't read the book or you haven't uh, seen the film, uh, the three blind mice are like what are these, these harmless guys. They're just setting the atmosphere of of this is set in Jamaica and they're just kind of you know bringing that to the audience. But then they have the whole reversal where the, the three blind mice are actually assassins and they gun down Strangways. It's a very good setup. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is a very good setup. Yeah, I, yeah. I would agree, and I I like it. I buy it. Yeah, yeah, excellent job of like directing, but also like sound effects editing. Um, all of that put together, it made a wonderful. Um, uh, I, I guess I'm a wonderful. Uh, I'll just use the word tapestry and and in there. Tapestry is a good word. Tapestry. Yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah. I like it. 
And it is. But, you know, I like Strangways in this film. I like him. I know he's barely in the film, but I thought he was really good. I liked him being... He's a great character in the novels. He's a great character in the novels, yep. And a big part to play in Live and Let Die, if I'm correct. Isn't it Strangways' place that Bond goes before he takes to Surprise Island? I believe so, yes. Yeah, I really liked him in that, and I thought that he was... um, But I I thought that he was quite arresting to to watch him, you know? I thought he was good. Yeah, yeah, he was. was, Yeah, he he definitely stood, stood out right away it's like he kind of had the bearing of like i don't know like a, a piro tool or something like that you know like he yeah. was was very clean cut tall you know guy but uh yeah he was yeah he was definitely like this guy is somebody you know at the very beginning i think you know this and we may even have spoke about this when we did the book i can't recall so you can tell me if if we did but he kind of reminds me of what i imagine ian fleming sort of thought of himself you know like a, a colonial guy in, yeah, in Jamaica, going to the cards and then home for wires and then back out to the card games for drinks and stuff like that, you know? Yeah, I can definitely see that. It's a good call. There's something there anyway. Um, yeah. But yeah, I like the introduction. I like how it's set up and I like Bond's introduction too. I like the transition from um, Strongway Secretary uh, to back to MI. I like the introduction of MI6 and or MI7 as M calls it in the movie. Um I think that was changed afterwards. Um, the introduction of MI6, you know, like I like how the, the idea of it's like the call center kind of atmosphere it had to it. Uh, mm-hmm. Kind of funny to me in that way. But I also liked how like you had like the one guy functioning as secretary of reporting. You saw how it functioned as an efficient organization, you know, and I, I really liked s- s- seeing that. And it brought a little realism to, to, the, to the movie. Yeah, very much so. And the, um, I I mean, did all of these guys have like secretaries that were kind of assigned to them? Do you think these foreign delegates, these foreign agents? I I think there was a secretary who basically oversaw all of them. And because it looks like there was only like one girl and and she went over to them and then she would, I think she would ferry notes back and forth to like the communications head, the guy who supposedly I I think supposed to be Tanner. I, I, I believe in that sequence, but I'm not sure. Oh, is that technically who Tanner is? Yeah, it was like, well, he's chief of staff, right? So mm, yeah, it could be him. Cool. Well, what did you make of all of the uh, the technology as it was explained in the story for the, the missile toppling? Like, I felt like they were kind of, uh, they, were, they weren't really revealing much of it to the audience. The, what, what I liked about it, and, and this is different, this is, is interesting, is that the whole Cape Canaveral thing isn't the the high stakes in the movie like it is for other Bond films. Doctor No is not shooting a missile at Los Angeles or something like that. He is simply toppling these 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 missiles, and this is causing a lot of fuck ups for the American government, and they're losing money because of it. And that's the reason why they want to have this op- this whole thing solved. That's why it's the anarchy that Doctor No is causing because of the, the things that he's doing. Yeah, but and in it, re- it is... reality, the stakes in the movie, though, I was, I'm, I'm going to say, yeah, yeah. is more about solving the mystery and find out and stopping Dr. No from what it, what he's doing. It puts you in the place of being an intelligence agent, not uh, trying to solve a mystery, trying to solve a case, more so than it is putting you in the row of an audience member going, yeehaw, James Bond movie, let's get the bad guys. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Well, what is Dr. No's objective? Because it isn't entirely clear. Is he just looking to piss around with and sort of mess up the international stage of they, They're of not quite clear missile. on that. No, they're, they're not. They're not quite clear on that. They kind of use him working for Spectre being kind of a write-off for that whole, I think, uh, I think in the change in the script, maybe that that occurred. Maybe he did have initial intentions that they were going to get into, but I think in the end, they just made him a Spectre agent, and he's just doing this because Blofeld told him so. 
Yeah. Okay. That that I mean I, that's how I read it. It's like this yeah. is one one of the arms of Spectre that just messes around with things. But you know, it's not impossible uh, that we have because we have it in later films, don't we? The Lewis Gilbert films. This idea of stealing a missile and then readjusting its trajectory to hit a different target, right? Yes, exactly. And then yeah, creating works. creating a world war scenario where one thinks another is doing something, but that doesn't seem to be Doctor No's interest. No, it 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 doesn't. It seems like he's toppling them for some particular reason. We Is he looking really to take why. their technology? Does he then go collect the the missiles? I don't know because they end up like somewhere like in the Amazon jungle. They mentioned <laughs> That's so, true. Yeah. you know, yeah. So yeah. I don't think he has the uh, that big of an operation. He's just doing this for some particular reason. It's kind of late and mysterious. Maybe it's kind of like they're just setting up like uh, it's almost like they're setting up a Moriarty kind of character. Like why are these crimes mm. being committed? Right. Okay. Right. I, I still feel like I'd like a better payoff, though, a better explanation of what's going on here. Yeah, I do agree. I think that the script kind of tricks you into getting more into solving the mystery uh, of just kind of like uh, stopping Dr. No from whatever he's doing and solving the initial mystery. And then that's it. It doesn't really focus on or doesn't think it needs to focus on the whys and wherefores. Well, speaking of that. They play fast and loose with nuclear technology here. Like, and I understand the time. I understand, the, yeah, you know, how it, early is, it is. But, but what is, is, it's, it's is like this, Crab Key now meltdown? Is it like Three Mile yeah, Island now? I know. Well, they don't. They they seem to be All interested they, to jump off of the the facility or to to swim away. But the, nobody seems bothered about radioactivity. It seems to me, though, is that like he overheated the reactor. It didn't melt down, and then Doctor No just fell into the reactor when it overheated. Well, but then, well but maybe, the but the whole itself, yeah. yeah, but the whole place blows up. Yeah, that's that's true. I don't know if the reactor blew or whatever, but uh, anyways, I mean, we are obviously looking back at this with our you know contemporary understanding of things, but yes, I can't help but wonder what is going on here, playing so fast and loose with the mechanics of nuclear energy and atomic kind of you know radiation and stuff. Like I'm, I, I'm an audience member thinking what. What does this mean for everybody who's there exactly? Not to mention because they had a whole decontamination procedure as well, right? So yeah, that's true. Because apparently the swamps were radioactive as well and mm -hmm. part of the island. So uh, they wanted to make sure there was no radioactive contamination. Yeah, it was really thorough too. Just like throw a paintbrush yeah. on somebody. Throw, yeah, throw some paintbrush soap on someone. Scrub yeah. them once. Wipe them. Wipe them yeah. basically. Introduce them to the bristles and then push <laughs> them on their way. Exactly. I hope Bond and... and Honey, enjoy cancer later on in life. That's all I have to say. <laughs> they, might, they might as well be smoking, huh? Yeah. Well, Sean Connery's got that covered. Bond's got that covered, right? So. He does. Yeah, he does. All right. So what else What else came up that uh, you wanted to talk about before we share our money pennies? We talked about Miss Tarot. Um, yeah. Bond was being Great a dick. Scene. But if you compare that to the scenes that were more controversial, we talked about like when Bond wrestles pussy galore or when Bond deals with uh, what's her name from the health clinic. Um, oh yeah, those, Pat, those, Pat Fearing. Pat Fearing, yeah. Uh, th that scene it was written, I think, in the script to be the way that it was, and that's why it works, in my opinion. They're not trying to like show the boys, ah, he he he, l l look at men being men, you know, and and smacking girls' butts and kind of like you know forcing themselves on them, like people had that attitude back in the day. This is more of this. This is more of like Bond being a spy and playing with his with with his. Uh, with his enemies, right? He's doing what, what what he's supposed to do. This is something that you'd see on the Americans, you know what I mean? Like in more grittier spy stuff. So that's mm -hmm. why it fits, I think, better in in this film than doesn't when you have other examples, as you mentioned, in Goldfinger and Thunderball. Mm. 
What did you make of the the car chase? I mean, this this film does Which give one? us our very first car chase. The the car chase between the, well, when 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 Bond is on his way up to Miss Tarot's. Oh and... yes, I, I thought it was pretty good for its time. Um, it, no, the... is that is that when he does it? That's not when he. When does that car chase happen between yeah, the he, hearse and the sunbeam? That's him um, going, yeah, going to Miss yeah. Tarot's. That's right. Yeah, because he's following her direction. You know, turn right at the cement factory and go uphill and. And stuff like that. And then yeah. you'll be uh, nearby. And that's where the black hearse comes, right? Because they want to ambush him. Mm-hmm. What did you make of that little car? I think it was very tiny. But uh, what, kind of, what kind of make was that, if I may ask? It was a, a Sunbeam Alpine. And the Sunbeam Alpine was a 1.6 liter four-cylinder engine vehicle, at least the one mm. that Bond drove. It, it was went a, fast. It, it went quick, but yeah. uh, top speed of about 100 miles an hour if, if you were to, you know, actually yeah. take it on the open road. Um, but the Daimler or whatever the, the hearse was, that thing was like huge yeah. like right behind him. That was now, awesome. I wonder if that was the idea of the rear projection. But then I saw behind the scenes footage and it's actually it was that tall compared to the Sunbeam. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I got I got a little bit of information here um, on, on the Sunbeam. I think it's interesting, particularly how it was used in the film. Uh, one difference, you know, between Ian Fleming's Doctor No and this film is the choice of vehicle, right? Like in in the film, we've got this Sunbeam Alpine, little tiny uh, convertible that Bond rents, and I think that's kind of part of keeping a low cover because it was a popular car uh, that was seen around the Caribbean at the time. Okay. Yeah. Um, on location in Jamaica. The filmmakers wanted to hire a kind of sporty car, and so they hired this car for 10 shillings a day. Okay. Now, there were other cars, like the like the MG and... Um, like the what MG. was the car that uh, Lighter and Felix, uh, that Lighter and uh, Quirrell were driving? Was that like a Thunderbird or a Ford something? or That car, the one that was behind them? Yeah, the one that they followed from the airport. Uh, that was a Chevy Bel Air. Chevy Bel Air, okay. Yeah, that's a great car. That's a beautiful car, the Chevy Bel Air. And that's also what Bond is in. Uh, at least I think that's what he's being tailed in. Isn't he being tailed by them in a, in a Bel Air? I think he is. It's the same car, isn't it? They're both driving them? Yeah, but one's like a convertible and one's not, right? Yeah. That, that, yeah. yeah. Maybe I'm wrong. I, don't, I actually don't know. Yeah. What's funny is that the, the actor that played um, Mr. Jones or whatever, uh, he is actually like the brother-in-law of Margaret DeWars, who was the Miss Jamaica model who played uh, the photographer. Oh, cool. Yeah. Apparently, he was like the one at the, at the time, he was the one of the most respected a- uh, actors in Jamaica. Oh, really cool. Yeah. Well, anyway, um, just getting back to the Sunbeam for a quick second. The, yeah. the, there was an idea. Uh, Cubby Broccoli, and this is Connery that remembered this, that Cubby Broccoli wanted to actually have the car chase end with the Alpine racing underneath the arm of a crane. You remember how they have that sort of construction stuff on the side of the roads, right? Yes, yes. But they wanted to perform that stunt for real, not just sort of do a rear projection job with it. Oh, so the, okay. the crew did a, a, a run-through of that stunt, like obviously a slow run-through of the stunt, and it was immediately clear that at full speed and bouncing along that bumpy road, the Alpine would, you know, because it was, as you said, like... Uh, a small car and you had Connery about what is he like six foot three or something like 190 centimeters or whatever the hell he is like he's driving the car that there's no way they were going to clear the crane and so according to to Connery the crew tried letting uh, air out of the tires to kind of lower it so that he would he could still do it you know yeah but uh, anyway yeah the final take is clearly done in uh, 
with the, with the rear back, projection, the, yeah. rear projection, yeah, it still looked pretty good for the time. Like when I watch movies back in the day, I expect rear projection to occur a lot, and, and you know, and and that was just a reality of the filmmaking at the time, so it doesn't really bother me too much. Mm-hmm. But I can see how it can bother some people who are just getting into the films, you know, who watch the Craig movies or the Brosnan ones, and all of a sudden they watch the Connery ones, and they're boring. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, this, I, by the way, this was uh, a British make car, okay? It was manufactured okay. by uh, Roots, R O O T E S, Roots. Um, they okay, made not, this, yeah. not the Canadian clothing company. Uh, no, this is Roots <laughs> with an E. Roots with an E. Mm-hmm. Very good. The guy, um, chairman of the company, uh, Billy Roots, Lord Roots, Lord Billy Roots. Okay. Mm hmm. Yeah, so more than 69,000 Sunbeam Alpines had been sold, but after 20 years of success, they decided to cut ties with manufacturing sports cars forever. Okay, very, very good. Very good. It's a nice um, little car. I quite like it yeah. as, a, as a first car a first car chase. It's Yeah, and of course, it's rear projected and it looks kind of silly, but I think it's pretty cool. Yeah, I liked how they filmed like the car on the first car chase, sort of the one with Mr. Jones, the chauffeur sequence, you mm-hmm. know, I liked how they filmed that sequence. Uh, they they were totally like you could tell Connery was actually in the back of that car and it wasn't rear projection, and just how fast the cars were going on the road. Like that was filmed very well, I thought. Yeah, yeah, and you got a good cool. kind of behind the behind the wheel kind of point of view. It was very it was sufficient, I think, you know, to give that verisimilitude to the whole story. Well, why don't, um, you, share, why don't you share your your thoughts on a on another scene? And I'm going to go look up that question you had about the car, the other one that's tailing them, because I think it was a Chevy Bel Air, but I could be wrong. So you go ahead and uh, share some thoughts about another scene that you can bring us into. Okay, maybe maybe well, that whole arrival in Jamaica would set us up nicely for that. Yeah, the whole arrival in Jamaica is really good. You transition from the Sylvia Trench scene, and then you go with the plane landing in Jamaica. That kind of documentary procedural feel about how you know uh, the, the they actually have like the um, the air traffic control officer saying uh, hello, my hello, New York. Your Pan Am flight has just landed. Uh, in, in Kingston, Jamaica, uh, just kind of give an air of James Bond is here. James Bond is coming, you know, like it just puts a b- b- bit of gravity to the whole story. I, re- I really like that. Um, mm-hmm. And then it shows him like walking into the walking into the terminal. That, by the way, was the first official shot. Uh, that was the first day of filming for Sean Connery as James Bond. The scene where he walks in through the airport and comes out the door. Oh, that cool. was that was that was Sean Connery's first scene as James Bond. First ever, huh? Yeah. Now, I mean, in, on the film, of course, his first scene is in the is in Le Cercle, Les Ambassadeurs, the card table. But this was actually his first filmed scene in in the whole series. That's interesting. Yeah, and it's pretty cool. Like Mar- Margaret Dewars, she got the um, she got the, um, uh, the I guess the honor of being in Sean Connery's first James Bond scene. I mean, that's pretty pretty awesome because she has her camera there, right? And she's shooting him with the camera bulb. And oh, that is a good that is good pub chat. Yeah, absolutely. And think about it too: is that uh, she in the in one of the interviews that I read, uh, Marguerite was saying how uh, Terrence Young wanted her to like lick the bulb because you notice that she licks the bulb and she puts mm-hmm. it in again. I did notice yeah, that. Yeah. He told her to do that. And she's like, "That's yucky." And 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 she, why, why, why would I do that? That's yucky. And Terrence Young is it's because you're evil, darling. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, is it true that she was working as an air hostess? Yes. Is that yeah? yeah. Yeah, yeah, she was an air hostess. Well, she was an air hostess. I think she was like working at like the counter. Okay. At the like cool. the uh, at the agent's counter, if I'm not mistaken. Hmm. Yeah. Nice one. Yeah, and they put all that makeup on her and stuff like that. Uh, she had a lot of trouble with her lines too. She mentioned uh, when she was having the scene in the 
at uh, Pussfella's place at, at, in the evening where she's being manhandled by Quirrell and brought to the table and interrogated. Uh, she was having a lot of trouble in those scenes and Terrence Young got really, really fed up actually. Um, and uh, she was really, she was crying. I want to go home. And, and Sean Connery uh, told, told her that, you know, Margaret, uh, you got to have, where's your self-confidence? You got to basically have it so that, you know, you're, uh, you know that you're the part just by feeling it, just by looking at you need not necessarily the lines. And that kind of really helped her do the scene actually. No, that's interesting. Didn't yeah. Another interesting fact about Terrence Young, I, I, I found out too, um, was that, um, he would always like keep in touch with all of his crew members and actors over the years, right? He loved making friends. That was one of the things that Terrence Young always did. Um, and one of the th- things is that uh, Luciana Paluzzi, who we all know from Thunderball, uh, her father had passed away, but she was getting married in New York. And so he actually flew from filming in, in Italy somewhere all the way to New York. And she gave, and he gave her away as uh, because her father had passed away. So that's pretty cool. And then he flew, and then he flew right back in one day back to Italy. So, yeah, it's, in, it's interesting how she was in New York and he was in Italy. But, uh, she, but uh, Luciana Pelosi, as a side note, she ended up doing a lot of American television and, and film after after Thunderbolt. Yeah, hmm. or before. Uh, after. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think she eventually went back to Italy, like in the in the late seventies or something like that. But she spent a lot of time in America. Hmm. We we talked about some of the iconic James Bond stuff that's here in this film that kind of does properly start us off. You know, we've got the car, we've got the watch, we've got the uh, the excitement, you know. The, uh, the, the first flirting with Money Penny. Yeah, the, all of that uh, stuff is the there. Whole, right? The whole scene with M. Well, yeah, I love M. that. I love, I love that whole scene. Bernard Lee just comes in that role like as if he was born to it, you know, like he was just there. <laughs> and the script does. The script does kind of work in some of this um well, how did you put it a few minutes ago? Uh, the sort of darkly um, sarcastic sort of uh, end of joke type thing, right? Yeah, because he wanted to basically tone down the violence that might get some mm-hmm. people on by putting the humor in there. Take the mickey out of it is what Terrence Young said. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I, liked, he... I liked the part where Dr. No was explaining that production point that he had to about why the fish looked all friggin' magnified, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and, and Bond, Bond said, minnows pretending to be whales or something like that. Like, <laughs> yeah. I thought that was good. I thought that was a really good line. Yeah, I actually like, uh, let's go back to Dr. No now. I really like that uh, conversation at the table. I just like how this is the first instance of Bond just antagonizing him. But mm. I, I love, but see, Connery does it better than Roger Moore. Roger Moore seems like a pest when he does it. Connery is just like just getting under this guy's skin as much as he possibly can, right? Because he, he doesn't like him. You can tell that Connery's mm. Bond in that scene doesn't yeah, like this doesn't guy. doesn't like him. Yeah. It's like, yeah. yeah, it's like with your like um, love of human life, you must work for the East or something like that, you know? Like, uh mm-hmm. It goes to tell me there's a topic of nuclear missiles compensate for no hands. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So like there's a lot of great lines like that, how he was doing it. And Wiseman was kind of like, I, I kind of wish Dr. Noah was in the movie a bit more. I think he comes in a bit too late in the story for us to really kind of get a bearing on him. But I do kind of like the aura of mystery that surrounds him through the entire movie. And he scares the shit out of all the people that work for him, like Dent, like the three blind mice, like Miss Tarot and the photographer, uh, Mr. Jones in particular, who cyanides rather than deal with Dr. No and his failure. So yeah, that that's intense. Like 
I was really surprised. That's and, a high. That's a high stakes gesture, man. And I think when they show him, like, in the, and he comes off in the scene, like, yeah, that guy's pretty freaking terrifying. You know, he has like crazy black claws and stuff like that. I kind of wish they got into his book origin story a little bit, like working with the Tong. I think that would give him much more a bit of a bit of a menace, explaining how like. Uh, he had to get his hands cut off in prison and all this kind of stuff like that. I think that would have been a bit more extra detail, but I guess they didn't have time for that. So, you know, they worked with what they had and on, on the script, and I, I think it, I think it, it played it played pr- pretty well. Yeah, it did. He's not, he's not my favorite Bond villain. I think they got more developed as he went along, but I think he was definitely a great archetype. Well, what or the, what prototype? You, prototype. Yes, I think that's better. Yeah, prototype is a better word. Yeah. What did you make of? his rapport with uh, Honey Rider. Like, I, I think we should probably talk about their relationship a little bit because I think she's a non-starter. I mean, Honey Honey Rider is a prize in this story. She is not a character. There's, yeah, her, her there's, book character was way more developed. It was, and at the same time, it was developed poorly. Like, it was developed, yeah. but it wasn't developed terribly well or with much, you know, much interest in writing a good female character. And we know Fleming is capable of doing that. He has done it in the past, but... I think in the um, writing they really threw in that whole here. thing about the um, the black spider thing to kind of show, I guess, that she's just as dangerous as he is. I think that's what they were trying to suggest with that scene. But it just kind of played off like Connery cared more about like he seemed bored by that. He almost seemed bored by the notion of of, her, of the guy assaulting her. And then he seems more disgusted though, that she killed a guy with a spider. You know what I mean? Like that's how it kind of how it played off to me in that way. It was kind of it wasn't the right tone that they wanted, in my opinion. Hmm. But did you think that she was a good actress? Do you think she held her weight? I don't. I, I think it's hard to say. Physically, I think she had the expressions right and everything like that. But because we couldn't hear her own voice, I just didn't buy that voice to her. I, it just didn't seem right to me. Yeah, and the, the dubbing was a problem for me in the film overall. But did yeah. you think? Did you think as a physical actress or as a physical actor, she did her job okay? Like there wasn't a lot for her to do. All she had to do was stand in a bikini, no. look hot, and uh, kind of follow Bond around in wet clothes, right? Well, I, I like the scene. I think her most physical action sequence was when she's at the when they're fleeing from the bauxite mine, and she gets down into that onto that onto that boat, you know, from the quay. I thought she did that pretty. She she, she did that pretty deftly, actually, in my opinion. And oh, really? uh, that was that was the most physical action I've seen of her, to be honest. Okay. Right. Yeah. Uh, and she, yeah, I don't know. Uh, she, but but again, like Doctor No, I found that she was a character that kind of came a bit too late in the story for us to really get to know her. You know. Hmm. Yeah, it's like think of all the women we've seen so far in the in the movie. Like we got Money Penny, and, and uh, okay, we, we um, who was in an, uh, at least five minutes of screen time. Then you have even Sylvia Trench, who is the girl that they kind of s- set up at the very beginning of the movie. Uh, then you have uh, the photographer. Then you have Miss Tarot. So then you have Honey, and but Honey is the is the lead billing the Marquis Bond girl, I guess of of the film, right? That's what. Because, uh, but that's mostly because of the of the novel that is based off of, and Honey is way more prominent in the novel, and that's the only reason why she had the billing that that she did, and also maybe just maybe uh, she was the white girl. Yeah, I think you're onto something there too. I mean, the racial politics of this film are much like the racial politics of the book; they haven't been cleaned up for presentation, really. No, they haven't. Because they knew they, the, they, I mean, the, the word they knew gr- their audience. Yeah, the word chigros isn't used, but it, it certainly no. is in the book. And, oh, yes. you know, it's it's uh, it's uncomfortable stuff. I don't know that people cared in the 1960s. Or, I mean, people, of course, cared. I don't know that uh, white they never audiences used the N-word cared. In, they never used the N-word in the movie, though. So, I mean, they probably cared in some capacity. No, you're right. 
Oh, by the way, I uh, discovered that the car that uh, they're driving in behind Bond, so uh, Felix Leiter and uh, Quarrel are driving. The, 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 you see a couple of different cars. The first thing you see is at the airport, Felix Leiter walks around to the front of a 1960 Herald Triumph Herald convertible, and then... When you actually see him on the road, he's driving a Chevrolet Impala. So go Impala. figure. Impala. I didn't yeah. recognize that car. That car looks so familiar. with I knew it was Impala. That's what it was. Che- yeah. yeah. Chevy Impala. Uh-huh. Well, I mean, I didn't know, pal, so you did well there. But uh, So it was yeah. a Chevy Bel Air that Bond was in, which is a fantastic car, beautiful sports car. And, I mean, very collectible today. But yeah. I, I don't think, you know, if the, I had my... The Impala is pretty popular too still. Oh, it is. But it, if it I had, had my, a resurgence... If I had my druthers, I would I would like to have seen that Bel Air in a brighter color, something to maybe mark it out a bit more instead of the black, because I think the black didn't give off the convertible's best lines. It didn't show off, you know. It's yeah. uh, it, it's it's sharpness, you know, and it's it's uh, it's real star power. However, okay. you could argue you could argue that a the production of the film probably just dealt with whatever they could find, and b. Um, Dr. No's guy driving a black car maybe made a bit more sense for these sort of monochrome good and evil themes, right? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Th- those are symbols that go all the way from like Western archety- archetypes and tropes. Yeah. So those are things that audiences would recognize immediately and, sub- and subliminally as well, right? So that's all about how they market it to the audience. But if it came down between the like the three cars that we've already mentioned, the Sunbeam Alpine, the, the Triumph, and this, the Bel Air. I would go for the Chevy Bel Air. I'd love to have one of those. They're awesome cars. Mm. Really nice cars, like properly cool. Yeah, anyway. there's, yeah there's a lot of cars we'd like to have, but I, I agree. I agree. It's <laughs> we'll a nice car. To, we'll, we'll just have to deal with the, the die-cast models instead. Yes. You can you can shrink yourself down like Ant-Man and hop in them if you want to. <laughs> it still won't drive. Yeah, so we'll drive, but whatever. Yeah, you could put a, you can get like a, you can, you can miniaturize an engine and put it in there, I guess. I don't know. Um, well, another feature of atmosphere. I mean, what do you think of the score in this film? Uh, the score is very, very like uh, melodramic action film, not the 1940s, 50s almost in, in a way, you know, like beyond the actual James Bond theme, which is, and, and the, the, and the local beats, like, you know, from Byron Lee and underneath the mango tree and stuff, which is mm-hmm. like, good diegetic stuff um i found that the score itself was very a typical hollywood action film of the time more like adventure film we didn't really have action pictures kind of back then they're more like adventure films well you know i found monty norman's music quite strange in places and i don't just mean the obvious it seems old-fashioned old fashioned. is what kind of i felt about it yeah it almost didn't feel like it matched the pacing of the movie and i kind of felt like it was a bit just a little bit different, you know, like a little bit jarring, a little bit. Uh, I think he was going for Herman in some ways Herman, too, because maybe, yeah. if, if you think, think of Psycho, where like the the all the the dun 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 dun, you know, like when mm-hmm. when when, mm-hmm. when the stabbing occurs, and then yeah. you have the sequence with the tarantula, and he's hitting it with the belt, and it's like each beat of him hitting the belt or whatever, the score is is jarring yeah. up yeah. in that fashion. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, how about the 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 part of the film? Would you make of the the sort of escape maze? 
you're talking about like the inside the piping and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Did well, you enjoy that that's, stuff? That's clearly apart from the original script, I think, where Doctor No is playing a game with James Bond, like he is in the novels. Like a, it was like a, a maze or a test. Yeah. And then this guy just got left into the movie. I kind of think like they didn't really need to have the hot water coming down. He could just got into the control room that way. But I guess they wanted to make you know the the the, the trek to the control room a little bit um, precarious, I suppose. Mm-hmm. It's not shot out into the den of a giant kraken though no he's definitely not shot out into the den of a giant kraken unfortunately uh-huh and i think maybe that was one of those strokes that the film a couldn't afford and b was better to not try <laughs> <laughs> yeah this, that would have been ridiculous uh i honestly it would end up being like a rory, rory harryhausen film or something like that you know like mm-hmm. uh jason and the argonauts kind of stuff well i thought one of the highlights of the film um I'll talk about acting in a couple of minutes, but I did think that uh, the sets were really, really, really cool. Oh, yeah. What was your favorite set in the movie? That's See, that's a tough one because domestically speaking, I I liked Miss Tarot's house. You know, I like yes, that. Yes, I love the whole house. That they yeah. that was used beautifully for the whole movie too, for the I whole sequence. Like uh, for yeah. the whole sequence. I they, really they, they liked that the, well. I really liked the colonial house too, you know, um, where he goes to meet... Um, Pradle Smith. Yeah, Pradle Smith, where he goes to meet Pradle Smith. Great character in the book, too. Um, I really like that whole, you know, the bookshelf sort of open space concept with the nice low back chairs. I liked all that stuff. I thought it was really cool. I liked the hotel rooms. I think I I liked most of the sets. But, I mean, come on. Dr. No's dining area with that fireplace is just a remarkable piece of engineering. It's a creative conception. Yeah, and then you hear about like like Adam actually getting the Goya painting and putting it there. I mean, that's just that's just fantastic. Yeah, that's a great little that's a funny little joke. You know, he must have been laughing when he did that. Oh, he did. Yeah, um, yeah, he he really really did. The dragon thing was was a, he was he was running so low on budget. He was saying in the interviews too, um, mm-hmm. like there was like seventy five hundred pounds left to the budget or something, and he just had to figure out how to use it. You know, so. <laughs> yeah. Uh, by the time they got to certain places, it was just ridiculous. Um, also, want to point out uh, also great location or set by Adam. I really like actually is the more subtle ones. Like I love like the Pussfellas Bar. Like I, I, that was a great set too. Yeah, that was that was good. That was yeah. good. It, it it kind of felt bare bones to me. It felt like the uh, you know just we've we've just created a you know a little ramshackle pub. Yeah. I also love. I, 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 I also love M's office. That's a classic set to me. That Mahol like Universal yeah. Exports office. Like, yeah, oh, that's a really good set. And I'm glad that they didn't deviate much in further films, in later films, from that because it does work. It really yeah. does work. So I mean, I, I liked the sets in the film. Um, I liked the location stuff. I thought, I thought that the, the you know, yeah, the, like the beaches minimalist. were nice. The beaches were nice, yeah. Like that beach where they filmed the one owned by this by the Simpson lady, where they filmed like the first scene with Honey, and then the, where the boat with the patrol boat arrives because you see like that river coming out into the lagoon, right? Just beautiful stuff there, um, and really, and kind of captured kind of like the oh, like Crab Key has his you know like this beautiful woman coming out of the surf, and there's beautiful water. How can this place be bad? But then when you get into the interior and deeper and mm-hmm. deeper, uh, it gets all irradiated marsh and everything like that, and mud and stuff, and uh, kind of it's kind of pulls you in into like a, it has kind of like a siren call to it. And in the middle of the island is where Dr. No's fortress is. And it has a sinister interior, I guess you could say. The control room set, which was that, quite big, quite, that quite large. Incredible set. But because like, I wasn't really emotionally drawn to the, to the whole missile mm-hmm. launch thing. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, that set gets kind of left over for me, but it is a fantastic set. If you just think about it, the design of it. Yeah. And I mean, you know, we've seen maybe something similar to it, like on the Batman TV show or something like that. That's right. You know, yes. I can totally picture a bunch of guys, you know what I mean? And just like, mm-hmm. biff, pow, you know? like. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a glossiness to it that kind yes. of, that, that does sort of, uh, I, I can't really put it into words, but it is just one of these Adam things, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's that light, of, it's use of light and color. Um, and yeah, do, open space, yeah. Open space, yeah, 100%. Also, even like the uh, the cells that Honey and um, Bond were kept in at the uh, Dr. Knows, those were interesting hotel They're rooms. Beautiful, well. yeah, beautiful. Yeah. I mean, all of this stuff is really, really well conceived and uh, just a, a blueprint of, I mean, a blueprint of genius might sound a little bit too um, heraldic, but you yeah, know yeah. what I mean? Like it is... It's really, really creative stuff, and it's such a, a spontaneous crew of clever people put together for this trial, you know? And that's what I really like about the story of this film, is that there's all kinds of talents that hadn't yet really learned how to work with each other, didn't really know what they were doing, but they knew they wanted to do it, and yes. they, they, they did the best that they could. And, you know, I think... What a most, team. Yeah, what a like, team, but, but generally about working on a film like this. I know that Ian um, Fleming had the cast and crew uh, often up to his place at GoldenEye or at least choice yeah, members he of should the have cast been said, He should have been said it all the time almost. Like he would always like... That's right. He, would, he was but, so smitten with Ursula Andress that he, he mentioned her in his next book. Did he? Yeah. He says, he mentioned a comment about some act, some, oh, you look like Ursula Andress or something oh, like that. Oh, that's right. That is right. Yeah. 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 Well, well remembered. Was that Unmatched know, Secret Service though, I wonder? Or, I uh, seven. No, the seventh book was Goldfinger. Gold, Goldfinger. Yes. I think yeah, it's, a, yeah. it's a Goldfinger reference. Yeah, that's right. But it must have been a strange film to, to make because, okay, if, if you've got two James Bonds under your belt and you know how the character is received, you know what it is you're doing and you know how successful what you're doing is, then... If you're filming in Jamaica and you're dining with Ian Fleming and you are kind of schmoozing and all the rest of it, you must just be on cloud nine. But I wonder how these actors felt knowing not what they were getting into, knowing not how well it was going to work and very much rolling the dice on production. Trepidation, I'm amazing. Yeah, yeah like, like we talk about like Wolf Mankiewicz, so just bailing from the movie completely, right? Like everyone having second right, thoughts. Yeah. Like Hollywood not wanting to make it because it's too British, too sexual. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of obstacles in getting Dr. No made. And it was just because of the daring do of Saltzman and uh, Broccoli. And they had someone who United Artists who wanted to do the film. But um, while they still couldn't finance it as much as they wanted to, you had brilliant people like uh, Ken Adam and Peter Hunt and the two sound and and the single sound editor that you know that they had f- for the film to put everything together in such a fashion that no matter if you chose to go to show even if you have a low budget as long as you put the hard work in and you can uh, make magic out of nothing you know mm-hmm. and you have everyone you know just on board on everything it's going to make a great picture right well on that note I think what I, I think I'll just go ahead and give you my scoring okay I'm, I'm ready to go money penny are you ready to come money penny in with me I'm ready to go money penny and I want to give honorable mention though to also the first scene of James Bond in the film where we, we introduce him at the at the card table uh, also a very great sequence in the film too and how it was put together um, there was a movie uh, there was a movie called Juarez starring Paul Mooney 
uh, and Paul Mooney was like a gangster actor, like when one of those actor character actors from the thirties, like movies like Scarface and stuff like that from the thirties, mm-hmm. um, who was known for gangster roles. And there was a movie called Juarez where they would cut around the, his character. So you wouldn't see his face. You'd just see like close-ups of different parts and then behind and everything like that until they finally revealed him. And that's the idea where Terrence Young got to reveal, uh, and Peter Hunt in the editing got to reveal, uh, how they wanted to reveal James Bond in the film. That's cool. That is cool. Yeah. And there was some nice, and do you know what I was thinking about actually, Josh, when I was watching that, like that sort of over the shoulder, um, disguise perspective, right? With, you could just see the hands and the cards and stuff. I was thinking of the opening scenes of Majesties, you know, where Bond, we were watching the lighter in the car on the gear stick yes. and stuff like that. That's Peter Hunt, right? He's yeah. directing this yeah. time. So he's doing the same kind of thing, but he's putting it blatantly like on there. So you can tell on a Magic Secret Service, the kind of Bond that he wants to be. But it's interesting because you get on a Magic Secret Service, you get Peter Hunt style um, as a director and as well as an editor and then you also have Terrence Young style which I think Hunt fed off of a little bit but he has his own style as well so uh, it's very interesting to see him kind of like split apart in different branches you know and, mm-hmm. and how they worked out and like I said Guy Hamilton was offered the original Bond film Dr. No as well but uh, he didn't he'd, but he passed on it it wasn't until it became a success I think that um, and then, then he was required at the last minute to, so that he could go and do Golden Eye, do Goldfinger that he that he did the picture. So, well, on that note, let's move on and do some money penny chats, okay? Tree blind, my cinero. Tree blind, my stereo. So money pennies, uh, we rate uh, story, acting, and atmosphere out of ten points or money pennies, as we call them, in honor of James of M's famous secretary. And we'll begin, Josh, with Double O Chapman's review of Doctor No. Jeff, not oh. with us this time. Uh, here are his words: Doctor No. What an excellent beginning of a film franchise. No wonder it became so iconic with a beginning like that. It doesn't feel like a first film, more like second or third. It had confidence, pathos, took itself seriously, but had fun in all the right places. A great cast, great locales, suspense and action was spread out evenly. The trade craft and espionage show, though passé and cliché, was new then, cutting edge. Little things like the hair on the closet door, the classic wait for the killer and play solitaire. Tropes now, but fun and cool nuggets for the time. A great way of showing interagency allies with cooperation of the CIA and MI6. Tete-a-tete at the club was excellent size up after the initial rough introduction with Felix. The, the sets were first rate, something the audiences of the film, or sorry, something the audiences of the time just would be bamboozled with. The modern style of the new 60s decade with a British colonial feel infused with Caribbean flavor. Dr. No's island and pad was immense and opulent, showing his wealth and power, his lack of modesty, not to mention his menacing plan for domination with Spectre. Now, Jeff obviously got more out of that menacing plan than I did. Yeah. Um, Anyway, Atmosphere 9. For a first film in a new but exciting genre of spy action series, the atmosphere was chock full of awesome. Yes, all of these tropes and cliches have now been done, but a unique idea of half-Asian hell bent on world domination working out of a million-dollar lair was captured perfectly. Each scene was carefully thought out, visually stunning. Connery really sold the cool calm and collected double O agent, Bond smoothly working his way to unravel and foil Dr. No's plan. The espionage was well thought out, believable, and shown properly. The use of agents 
and contacts was also well used, helping to give the audience appreciation for the effort needed to succeed in the mission, helping with the atmosphere of this blockbuster spy thriller. Acting, he gave an eight, solid acting from the start, exclamation mark. Connery forcefully grabs hold, in classic fashion of course, of the Bond character in his debut, Doesn't Let Go. A young but intelligent MI6 agent, cool, tough, and dangerous. Besides Connery, the rest of the cast is very played and suited for the film. Obviously, with having Andress uh, dubbed, it loses some urgency and realism. It was well dubbed. Quarrel and Lighter were great comrades in their characters, and their characters added to the film perfectly. Dr. No was eccentric and diabolical, though a trope, cliché now, but 1962, a new, unique sort of villain for a new genre and a new decade of film. Of course, Money Penny was a small but important relationship to plant. Great chemistry to boot. Writing, 7.5. The script was well done. Not the most incredible script of all Bond films, but this is the film that started it all. The writing made sense for the times. It was pretty sexist, as we know Bond scripts to be, but not as overly sexual or risque as later's would be. Connery's Bond was written excellently. Lighter was well written too, though a small role. A good dose of American arrogance and confidence helps show the interagency comradeship. The other characters were okay, like Quarrel and Honey Rider and Dr. No. They weren't anything to write home about, but Dr. No's lines were intriguing and, for a new audience, probably very thought-provoking or diabolical. Honey Rider wasn't all that bad, in my opinion, even though Andrus was dubbed. Lois Maxwell was great in her debut as Money Penny. Showed another relationship for Bond, kept the audience thinking. All in all, pretty solid for a 1962 movie with lots of bare-chested men, not too cheesy and over-the-top. That came later on, of course, as the franchise had to one-up itself each and every time. So, writing 7.5, acting 8, atmosphere 9. Okay. So that is a very favorable review from Double O Chapman. That's a okay. score of 24.5. Okay. So what about you? How did you feel? So, story, I went for a 7. I'm kind of in Jeff's. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of in Jeff's field. Like it was a basic story, um, Doctor No. Like it was a mystery, and then it was turned into an adventure film halfway through. So there's a bit of a tonality, kind of back and forth. Like it's almost like the first film seemed like a, a, a st- strong espionage thriller, and then the second half was harkening more towards its no- novel version of being kind of like this uh, typical where the Bond films kind of end up like la- later on down the road. But they did it in an eloquent way that I, you know, that it was still done done in a good way. So I still enjoyed the crab key scenes. I do find it slows down at that point. Some people say that it slows down way before, like the pacing wise. Um, but I think you just got to let Terrence Young scenes breathe um, like a fine wine, in, in my opinion. I think you've uh, said that before. About oh, have fine I? Wine. I think you have. Yeah, I think you've said that before on the show about letting uh, the scenes breathe on like a fine wine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Okay. I, don't no, I, no, no. I, I am not tackling you at all for using the same metaphor or yeah. for using the same analogy. I just, I don't know yeah. if, if, if your comment was about Terrence Young, that would be quite interesting. Oh, okay. Well, all I'm saying is, is that uh, with the story, I, I just found it a very basic James Bond story. Um, it was, and, I, and we weren't clear exactly on Dr. No's full motives, why he was doing what he was doing. Um, There's a couple of instances of the plot that didn't make quite sense to me, like the whole thing about crawling through the tunnel and the hot water coming out of nowhere. Uh, were they flushing their reactor? But wouldn't that reactor fluid kill him? Like uh, I wasn't yeah. sure what that was all. What that, that was all that about. That was very weird. It was like a big tofu 
square that was going down into the water and kind of heating things up and then being pulled out again. Like, I didn't understand this. Like, how much are they just having a laugh with the the uh, the nuclear <laughs> mechanics of this? Yeah, exactly. Um, Einstein, you're giving him the bird. Um, <laughs> so... Yeah, I just think that uh, the story was pretty basic, but uh, but it, but it worked well, I think, with the directing and the editing and everything. But it's still a basic story to me. I gave acting seven. Okay. I found the acting was like Connery's first debut was really good. Um, I found him was awesome in the opening sequence. I don't know what part they filmed, but I can see probably throughout the production, Connery probably got better as an actor as playing James Bond. But there are a couple of scenes like where he's a little stiff sometimes, sometimes a little wooden. Um, I don't think he had great chemistry with Honey. Um, I think that's kind of scenes where maybe he wasn't that great in. But I do like the scenes he was in with Dr. No. I like the scenes we did with Felix. Uh, most of the stuff like in Kingston, uh, all that stuff was really well done and the stuff in, in London. So I'm actually thinking now I'm going to probably go to a seven and a half for acting more so than a seven. OK. And you were seven and a half for story, right? Uh, seven. Seven for story. Yeah. Right on. And uh, I'm with Jeff on atmosphere. Uh, nine. Um, the atmosphere of this movie, the setting in Jamaica, the whole feel, the spy craft of, of, the, of this, the era that it was set in, of the time, of the world that they're trying to create for us and for us. Um, and you just kind of immerse yourself into the story. That's one thing Dr. No does really successfully, mm-hmm. um, much like much of love does, in my opinion. And the atmosphere to me, like if the score was a little bit better, um, I would probably get the atmosphere much higher. But Jesus, I find you, g- and you gave it a nine. That's pretty high, yeah. buddy. Exactly. So I'm going to give Atmosphere uh, a, a solid nine. That, to me, was the big standout of this film, was just the world building, uh, the immersion that it had and being part of this story um, for Dr. No. Wow. Okay. Well, that brings you to a 23.5. Okay. That's a film that you liked a lot. Yeah. I didn't see it quite the same way you guys did. Uh, and I'm, I'm trying really hard not to, not to bash a film because it's a first time out the gate, you know? Yes, um, I understand. I felt that there were some serious detriments to the story here. I gave the story a 6.5 overall, so maybe okay. serious detriment is not correct. We're not inspector territory no. here. Um, no. But I, I didn't like that there was no role for Honey Rider and that she was just so obviously a, a, a just a, a pinup girl in this. You know, She was a prize to win and to sleep with at the end of everything. And I also didn't like the way that given that end result for her character they also made her quite childlike i found that there was actually something quite unsettling about that that there was like 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 a a prey element to this whole thing like i'm going to take this girl afterwards because she's too stupid and too simple to know that i can take advantage of her and i i know this was never spoken and it was probably never intended uh but her ruthlessness that we saw in the book never came through in her character she became so compliant and so conditioned to needing bond around that I, to me, I, like, I sequence, didn't like that. The sequence leading up to the waterfall sequence where they're talking, like that was actually good character development. But it's when she, as soon as they got captured, that's when she kind of came to be a damsel in distress immediately after that. Mm. Like when she was telling him about like killing the guy with the with the black widow spider, it took him a whole week to die. I'm like, okay, this girl is kind of crazy, and but kind of cool at the same time. But then she becomes a damsel in distress like immediately afterwards. Yeah, and I get that idea that we need that to a certain extent for this to be the Bond machismo stuff. But, you know, in, yeah. in the book, it was Honey Rider's idea to cut the bamboo or to cut the, the vines and Bond gave her good credit for that, you know? But in the film, yeah. in the film, it's all, it's just kind of passed over that type yeah, of that, character. Now, 
Yeah, and that kind of character has like an agenda that's prevalent in today's film for sure. But yeah, back in the right. 1960s, yeah. they're not going to focus on stuff like that. I know. What they would do is that they would just write her as a love interest instead. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Okay, look, I, like I said, I'm, yeah. I'm aware of this, but it doesn't make it doesn't make it any better a film for me. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm still I, trying to uh, I'm still trying yeah. to think about the regular film goer, not just the diehard Bond fan as well. Yeah, um, of course. There's no attempt to really explain the science of this, and you know, in a world where Ken Adam can create such incredible sets and they can bring together the talent to make a film like this. I just figured the script could have gestured a little bit more to the science, but maybe the 1962 audience doesn't care about it. And so the script doesn't need to explain anything, yeah. but you know, they're playing with new stuff. So why not? To me, this is, this, this has the same failing as the DNA clinic in die another day, because the DNA clinic in 2002 would have been where the missile toppling stuff was then. And neither one of them really went anywhere with the science of it. There's truth to the atomic radioactive um, radar toppling, but we don't know what it is. It's just a big mouthful of science and it's kind of silly. And, you know, I'm okay, fine. I'm in a world of quasi Fu Manchu nonsense. I'll go along with it, but I I would like to have seen a little bit something more there. I I found that... That's kind of... Yeah, that's why I feel like at this story, like I find that when it reaches Crab Key, it goes into like a science fiction zone almost, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they didn't have the giant squid in there like there is in the book or the, the, the or the maze and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But, you know, maybe those things would probably would probably make you buy the last sequence a bit more saying, OK, we've got a giant squid here. Why the F am I worrying about why the how the nuclear fission is being portrayed? You know, like yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's fighting a giant mm-hmm. squid. Or that, it doesn't even matter anymore. Right. But then, of course, you have a totally different type of film. So, so they try to play it off as if like, yeah, we'll make a difference anyways, right? So it's kind of a bit of an insult to the audience intelligence in some capacity. Well, I, I only went six point five, so I guess I mean yeah. we're, we're in the same ballpark, all of us together. But um, yeah, the story could have been definitely been better. I definitely like. I, I think the the directing of, Ty- of Terrence Young and and the editing of Peter Hunt. I think they really pulled the movie together. And uh, it, 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 there's a lot of great style and and there's there's a great there's a few there's there's iconic scenes in this movie, um, uh, but again I find that the second half the the crab the crab key and onward stuff, um, with a few exceptions to me is a bit kind of over the top. Right. Uh, so my story mark was six point five. Okay. Now acting, I also want to add. I'm talking about Connery. Ursula Andress was dubbed, so I really can't get a, a bearing on her. Um, and again, I think that's also a fault of the writing and the story as well in p- terms of, of Honey Rider's portrayal. Um, I like Jack Lord as Felix Leiter. He was pretty good. I like kind of like the repartee. I wish there was kind of more of, of Felix Leiter in the film. Quirrell, uh, the actor was good in the role, but I found writing-wise there was some uh, issues. Uh, you know, um, there's that magic, you know, character aspect to him i suppose you could say also in a way a bit of a kind of um uh, not a board, not, not well maybe not borderline i want to say racist but definitely borderline uh pro- problematic portrayals of his character you know like him with the rum and being drunk and stuff and falling into all these caricatures you know that um that the novels kind of got into unfortunately well i think that i, th- I mean i'll call it what it is i think it is racist i think this is the jamaica that fleming loved so much where you can look at a black man and say quarrel get up and get that camera and he gets up and does it like he's yes. sur- he's, he's subservient to the white man and i don't think there's yes. any any reason to dodge that fact like yeah this, this isn't true, a nice portrayal of the Cayman 
Islander. He's a wonderful character. In the book, he's fantastic when he has that, like, we learn why he has the loyalty, and he and Bond have the dinner, and they have the night passage and all of that, and that's great. In here, he is just a caricature that would work for the early 60s film, and yeah, I mean... I, I didn't didn't think much of that. I liked yeah, him. I it liked wasn't to character. kill a mockingbird, that's for sure. Uh, no, there's no Atticus Finch anywhere in the air in this film. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. Uh, anyway, my, my mark for acting was a 7.5, so I was, again, a little bit lower than you guys. I didn't think there were any really arresting performances in this movie. I thought that Dr. No was kind of arresting in his presence and his lair, but I didn't yeah. really think Joseph Wiseman was, was captivating. Connery was okay. He was cool. He did at some points look like a deer in the headlights, though, like he wasn't quite sure of what this role was all about. And I can I appreciate that. He, he was never bad, though, ever, ever bad. His line deliveries were very smooth in many places. Physically, he looked great. Um, Money Penny and M for me were the highlights of the film, and Felix Leiter. I thought they were the best. I enjoyed watching Connery. I did enjoy yeah. watching him, but I didn't think he was. Uh, I, I didn't think he he compared to where he he goes. Gold, with he wasn't Gold Goldfinger. No. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. But that's but yeah, okay. Like, like he, but, he, but had, he had and Maxwell. He did. He did. Uh, he had some good scenes in the movie as a whole. I said there was scenes where he was a bit stiff. That's I, I kind of agree with you on that. Like. But I mean, in comparison to seeing Die Another Day and then going to watch this movie and you kind of, you know, like it's just very reassuring to get back that old Connery, you know, feel. And this was kind of like the beginning of the Connery. This was him slowly developing the character. Even from Russia of Love, he has a few stiff moments, right? He's not quite the Connery of Goldfinger yet, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but he still works really, really efficiently in in From Russia of Love. But uh, it's the story of From Russia of Love that propels him, in my opinion. But I also wonder, handing an olive branch here, I do wonder if... The budgetary problems or budgetary restrictions on this film kept the director from reshooting scenes. Maybe. Oh, uh, may, I agree. Know, I mean, maybe yeah. he's feeling like, God damn it, I could get a better performance out of him if I just did this. But we're, you know, our dailies are done. We got to get back and yeah. blah, blah, blah. Young never used master shots as well, from what I understand. Ah, well, okay. Hmm. Yeah, he liked doing like this the multiple angles and stuff like that, right? So, so I think this was probably the perfect storm of beginnings. And uh, Connery was very good in that environment. Young was very good in that environment. As Ursula Andress was okay, uh, but I thought that the smaller, minor performances from uh, like M and Money Penny and Lighter, I really liked those guys. They stood out for me. I just felt like Bond was a bit. Uh, just a bit cold and, and emotionless. And it's funny because Granny O picked up on that as well, and we'll get to her shortly. The dubbing was a distraction for me. I'm sorry, it yeah. really was. And that, I mean, it wasn't so much for Jeff, but it, it did take away, I mean, from from the the performance that Andrus was offering us, I I thought. And although it's there kind of... just although there are two really attractive human beings, I didn't feel there was great chemistry between them. Like no. this, this was just two pretty people, and yeah. much like uh, Halle Berry and and Pierce Brosnan, you know. I got more of a kind of a chemistry between uh, not just Connery and Maxwell, but Connery and Eunice Gason. Even though Eunice Gason was dubbed, unfortunately, I found the physical chemistry was still good between Connery and her. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. And I, I, I found her a more interesting character than Honey, <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, you kind of Honey see... was interesting. Yeah, but I mean, the book is there's the book behind that too, right? There's that's much true. More... That's true. I'm I'm being skewed maybe a little bit in the film. She th- there's not much there. Yeah. She's a prize to win. Um. So yeah, um, that was me. Seven point five. Uh, no, sorry, uh, six for my acting. I went six. Okay, I was at seven. Yeah. Um. Well, you went to seven point five. Oh, I did. Okay. Yeah. Seven seven point five. Sorry. Yeah, I made that extra adjustment there because 
Well, for um, the for the atmosphere, I went uh, I went higher, uh, like you guys did. I thought that the atmosphere was the the best feature of this film, um, particularly <laughs> or perhaps even more so because of the budgetary demands. I was really impressed with what they were be able to do, and I think just on the artistic merit, the film was a success. I would have gone higher than I did had I cared for the score. I know a lot about film music of the time. I know a lot about film music in general, as do you, Josh. And I know that there are better composers they could have got out there to do something better for this film than Monty Norman. But Monty they had Norman, him right under their eyes, too. But Monty Norman <laughs> gave us Norman gave us the the Bond theme, and you know that is necessary. So this this yeah. is a necessary bad score because the score is not great. It's uh, the music isn't isn't really well matched to the the film, in my opinion, at least. But the, the melody that came out for the James Bond theme is, is so necessary that we'll accept it, right? That's right. So yeah, I, I went uh, I went 7.5 for Atmosphere. Uh, okay. I would have given a 10 alone just to Dr. No's Lair, to be honest, but... 7.5 for Atmosphere? Yeah, 7.5, 6.5, and 6. So I am at a 20 overall. Okay, very good, very good. And now, should we uh, turn the tables and see what Double OGO has to say? All right. Hello, Double OGO. So what did you think of Dr. No? Didn't like him at all. No, not not the character. He's not a very likable chap, is he? No, he's not. No, no. And I remember when I first, you know, just read him in the book, I'd, he wasn't, um, he didn't come across that way either. No, he's not a nice character in either place. If, right, exactly. No. But uh, I remember the, the, um, the female, what's her name? Ursula. Ursula Andress. The first Bond film. Bond girl, wasn't she? She sure was. And what was your reaction of her then compared to now? Well, I... She didn't have, you know, too much uh, to do with the story, did she? I think she was... She had a lot to do with the story originally written, but, I mean, only insofar as they needed a girl to be in the book, right? Exactly. And a beautiful woman. Yeah. Right. And her story, course, her I mean, story. I mean, wouldn't be able to survive unless he had something like that, uh, you know, on his shoulder. Well, this is this is arguable. That's right. Um, she she has some tenuous links to Doctor No because her father, who was a marine biologist, was killed by him when he got too close to some of the radioactive behaviors that were going on in Crab Key and all of that. Yeah, all of yeah, that sort I figure that. Yeah, but but, but what was the the. Um, the rocks, why were they radioactive? Well, they were radioactive because Crab Key, which was Dr. No's secret uh, lair, of course, his private island or his secret island, that was using uh, atomic technology to topple missiles, to send them off course, right? Okay. And so... Okay. So that's why the, the rocks were magnetic? That's right. Yeah, that's why they they were able to uh, they were able to produce okay. such a radioactive. Okay, and now effect. now it begins. Uh, mm -hmm. Well, it makes some sense. Uh, well, Doctor No himself is an agent of Spectre, and 
Yeah, we get, get that. Yeah, we get the idea that his operation on Crab Key is really just one arm of this very multitudinous and nefarious organization that's doing things all over the world, right? Yeah, okay. This is, this is um, was it common knowledge? Well, no, no, it wasn't common knowledge. Uh, only among the criminal elite was it common knowledge. But, you know, if you, if you decided to do a rocket test, I, Dr. No, could um, topple through radar. Put, put, I, yeah, I'll put it off kilter. Yeah. Now I got it. <laughs> so it's the, it's the idea of meddling with international affairs and being able to hold for ransom countries because of the technology that he has. Just, just taking over the technology after you just got it. That's right. Yeah, I think I think Doctor Noel was just interested in being able to piss around with other people's technology so that he could monopolize and cash in on them, right? Yeah. Oh God, it sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? Well, it is ridiculous, Granny O. I mean, it's it's very ridiculous. But as as a first Bond villain, I think Doctor No is really quite arresting. He's really quite an interesting guy to look at. Yeah, he's pretty scary. Got to be said. <laughs> but Sean Connery, yeah. you must be, you must be yeah. delighted with Connery in this film. Well, now he's I, I don't know, but Sean, but all I can say is that I, he didn't seem to be, you know, too dramatic. I think he was trying to play he it was, cool. He, yeah, I know, but he was he was blasé about everything so much. You didn't get much emotion from him. No. It's really funny to me to hear you say that because I think rewatching these films now, you're getting a different feeling for Connery. You obviously still like yes, him, and you yes, still feel exactly. he's very attractive. Uh, but I, I enjoy him later on in life. You know, yeah. I, maybe it was other movies, but this one, I, I wasn't very impressed with him. Hmm. Well, I shouldn't say that. I will. I can spend all afternoon looking at him. Yes, but then, I know. You know, that. it's just that yeah. uh, he didn't seem to be you get too excited about anything. And, and I, I, I see what you're saying. He was very stoic in a lot of this stuff, and he, yeah, he performed the role kind of cold, almost like emotionally cold to a lot of what was going on. Yes, like he had it all planned or something. You know. Yeah. Yeah. You've taken an interesting journey on the show with us so far because you haven't really defended Connery's films the way that I thought you might just because you love <laughs> Connery. But I think I think that's down to I think it's down to you just open-mindedly looking at these films now dif uh, yes, differently. Yes, that's quite true. Instead of looking at a pretty boy. That's right. I think you're actually seeing these films differently than you did when you were a young woman. That's right. I think that's what a lot of his movies were were about. Just you know, no, they had nothing to it, but they just look his potential to, to be pretty boy. Yeah, and he is a very attractive man. Let's not, you know, he's a handsome guy. Yeah, even when he got older, you know, yes. he he yeah. was attractive. Yeah, and I do like his him as James turned, Bond. Turned gray. I like him as James Bond, and I like the opening of this film. Did you like the opening of the film? When he's introduced, you see him smoking the cigarette, and he delivers his first line, Bond, James Bond, when Sylvia Trench's oh, character. Oh, yeah. And it, 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 he did it, it was very sultry, wasn't it? Yeah, I thought I thought so, yeah. Very cool it's, as well. Yeah, I think he was trying to, you should be impressed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Anyway, I, I, 
uh, if this is the first film, I can understand. I see why I mean, he, you know, made a good James Bond, but the, that film wasn't the best one of the, the series. No, I would agree. The film isn't the best of the series, and it's not. It's it's not, in my opinion, at least, it's not the best of Connery's either. No, no, exactly. I mean, he didn't. He didn't exert himself at all. Not really, no. There were a couple of fights, and it was fun to watch him, you know, muck about in One different or two places. smacked across the face, that's about all. Yeah, there's not a lot of that. <laughs> not a lot. But. Yeah, well, now, see, I see what, what's happening to me now. I'm saying, uh, you know, at the beginning, it was because he was such a pretty boy, and at the end, he was just, you know, a real 007. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the series. Yeah. Yeah, because it wasn't his best. That wasn't the best one. But no, no, it wasn't. It really wasn't. No, but there were good no, scenes in it. That's concerned anyway. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm surprised. If that was the first one that I'm surprised that that it that it got so big as it did, because you know this, the, I read the books before the, the series. Sure. And I always thought that the books were a lot better than than the movies. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is funny how this film took off. I mean, James Bond's first film outing, Dr. No, cost $1 million to produce, and the budget was paid back 60 times over. It was very popular. I mean, a movie that made that kind of money so quickly was phenomenal. But don't you think the books had a lot to do with it? I think they, they they did have a lot sure to do with did. it. Yeah, you know, I mean, people read the books; they liked them. They figured the movie was going to be couldn't be anything but good. Yeah, yeah, and I don't think. Pe- and of course, he was, if nothing else, you could he was good to look at, and the girls were always gorgeous. Yes, they were. They promised a certain amount of eye candy. <laughs> True, exactly. Anyway, that's not the best one. Let's put it that way. So would you recommend Dr. No to somebody who wanted to know what James Bond was all about? Not really. All the rest of them were seemed to be better than that one. Except for the one we watched last time, Die Another Day. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think that Dr. No remains an entertaining film, and it's nice for the feeling that the film gives you. I like being in Jamaica. I think that's fun. And I do like looking at Connery. I do like looking at Ursula Andress. They're very attractive actors to put on the screen together, obviously. They work well together. And and the country itself is beautiful. And the country is beautiful. And I think Dr. No's lair is really remarkable. I do like the set construction, the set design in this film. (laughs) I think it's quite neat. There's nothing wrong with it, is there? No, it would be, it's, you know, it's better than my bedroom. <laughs> well, yeah, mine too, dear. You can imagine. <laughs> and I think a lot of what we see in Dr. No is timely, and it is of the time. And I think a contemporary audience would have viewed it much like we today view a contemporary science-y drama action flick. But, yeah, yeah. but now... And you heard, you know, I remember you know, what they call the Cold War hearing about all these intricate places like down in the Caribbean. Yeah, that, that's uh, right. That had weapons. The laboratories. Like yeah, sure. Uh, okay, when I find out what our next film's going to be, I'll let you know, as always. Okay. Who, who, who rolls the wheel? I roll the wheel girl? here. No, I roll it here. Oh, okay. What girls? Did your daughter roll it? What girls? I don't have any girls working on my show. <laughs> okay. I don't have a budget for that. <laughs> okay. Talk to you soon.
Bye, sweetie. Bye. So there you go, Double uh, O'Geo's opinion on Dr. No. Maybe some surprises there, Josh, little ones maybe? Uh, perspectives change, I guess. Yeah, perspectives do change. And uh, while, you know, she's still obviously very much a fan of Connery the Man, uh, she admitted that perhaps Dr. No uh, was remembered more fondly than she would objectively uh, criticize today. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I, I, I could say that for for sure. She she did enjoy it from Rush with Love though. So I mean, so she's yes. still kind of uh-huh. yeah. But yeah, uh, yeah Doctor No is probably like definitely in, in the bottom rungs of the Connery era, I suppose. But so for her, for her, anyways, mm-hmm. yes, for her. Well, uh, it's time for us to move away from the critical review and get into one of the favorite features of our show. And of course, I'm talking about the clothes quiz. Are you ready for the clothes quiz on Dr. No? Oh, yes. Oh, that sounded very confident. What has bred the confidence? I don't know. I'm just ready for it. Okay. Well, let's see then. I've got nine questions for you, a BFG. Nine questions with a bonus question. Okay? Bring it on. All right, here we go. Question number one. This is a sartorial quiz for Dr. No. At what point does James Bond wear a light gray mohair and wool suit, Sea Island white cotton shirt, and dark navy grenadine tie? Once again, that's a light gray mohair and wool suit, Sea Island white cotton shirt, and a dark navy grenadine tie. I would say... um both when he arrives in Jamaica and also at, at, his, at a visited government house. I'm afraid not. No, no. He wears that light gray mohair suit at Pussfelder's Club meeting Quarrel and Lighter. Ah, uh, okay. That was my. That would be my second guess. <laughs> okay. Well, maybe I don't. Be... I don't. I don't know what half those words mean. So I only go by like the colors. So there we go. <laughs> That's fine. You don't admit that. Nehru jacket and stone flat front trousers. Dr. No's dinner table. Yes. Pressed for dinner with Dr. No. When does James Bond wear a dark gray flannel suit with pale blue cotton shirt and dark navy grenadine tie? Once again, that's a dark gray flannel suit with pale blue cotton shirt and blue tie. The airport and at the government house. That's the arrival in Kingston. Good man. Yes, you are correct. Well done. You are one, two... Three questions in, and you have scored two correctly. Here we go. Question number four. When does James Bond wear a black and cream Glen check suit, pale blue shirt, and navy tie? A black and cream Glen check suit. Uh, that would be in the scenes at government, the second scene at government house, and when he goes to see uh, Miss Tarot. That's incorrect. Oh. I'm afraid that's at the social club, Kingston. I will do a fact check on that one, though, to see if he has that on when he goes to Miss Terrell's. Mm. I don't think he does, though. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. Uh, okay. <laughs> two, for, two and two. Number five. Uh, when does James Bond wear a single-breasted navy blue blazer, dark gray flannel trousers, a light blue shirt, and a navy tie? 
That would be at, at uh, Miss Tarot's place where he shoots Professor Dent. Correct. Nicely done. Nicely, nicely done. Uh, let's move on. Number six. When does James Bond wear his midnight blue shawl collar dinner suit? Oh, that would be at Le Circa Club. Mm-hmm. At the very beginning of the film, his introduction, yeah. of course. Yeah, exactly. Well and, well and he also wears it to the office, too. Yes, he does. Yep. Yeah. Okay, now, not a James Bond question. This okay. instead is asking you to identify the character who wears a light beige silk suit. And beige is the natural color of silk with a white shirt and a deep red tie. Hmm. Felix Slater. No, that is Strangways, the silk suit, the deep oh, red tie with the okay. white shirt. Oh, unlucky there. Try this one. Try this one. Which character in the film BFG wears a tropical beige three-button suit with a white shirt and a solid brown tie? Professor Dent. No, that's Felix Slater. Yeah, I was paying attention to Bond in the movies, not everybody else. That's that's that, that's <laughs> the thing. I know, but what did you know? What you said a couple of minutes ago about how how little um, variance there is in the clothes. Yes. That's that's why I went shopping for other characters. Oh, I see. Yeah, so I'll I wasn't. Tell you what, I, I was only paying attention to Bond in the movie. So, okay. Well, because because James Bond or because Felix Slater does wear a beige suit, and so does Strangways, I'm going to give you a point for that. Okay. Okay, I'm definitely going to do that because that's that's being nice, and this is, this should typically be about James Bond, but instead I've thrown a couple of uh, wrenches into the works here. Uh, last question: When does James Bond wear a light blue cotton knit shirt with light blue trousers? Light blue cotton knit shirt, like a polo oh, shirt with on, light blue trousers. On uh, on Crab Key. Of course, the adventures on Crab Key. Yes. Yes. Now. My friend, let's really get down to business here with sartorial knowledge. The bonus question. What rookie mistake does Connery make with his two-button suit in Dr. No? This, of course, reflects that Connery was not used to wearing suits, and he lacked the polish of style that other actors probably had at the time. It might also say something about the low budget, opting not to reshoot the scene to get these little style points correct. But this is a rookie mistake that Connery makes on different occasions in the film with his two-button suit. It's quite revealing to people with a sartorial eye, and I do not necessarily put myself into that category, by the way. This Nor is just I. me. This is just me as a researcher, but it's interesting. So there's and no I, way I could have possibly get this answer right then, right? Yes, there so. is. There is a way you could possibly get it right. I haven't just set you up so that I can then data dump for five minutes on a subject, okay? Really? Okay. <laughs> I have not. I promise. So he wears like, he wears a kerchief like incorrectly. No, that's a very good guess though, because Moore did that, didn't he, in one of his films recently? He did, yeah. Moonraker, that's right. yeah. No, in fact, and I didn't know the reason for it. I always knew that with a two-button suit, the rule goes that you're not supposed to button up your bottom button. You only button up your top button. Okay. Ah. In two-button suits, you button up the top button. He, Sean Connery, buttons both or the bottom button of his suit only. First, at Colonial House in his flannel suit, and secondly, when watching the hearse drop off the cliff after the chase. Now, the reason this is a faux pas isn't just some sort of, like, styling tip that, uh, you know, the fashionistas get their panties in a twist about. Yeah. The idea of only buttoning the top button has a lot to do with the suit jacket and the way it's cut, okay? Right. Now, the four parts, because I, I looked into it, the four parts of a jacket are curved away below the 
top button and the lower right. button if, if you bring the lower button in it doesn't meet up naturally with the buttonhole that's on its adjacent flap okay oh, okay so what you do if you fasten the lower button of a of a two-button suit is you actually force the jacket to pull across your hips which makes a mess of it and it ruins the lines that are clearly cut down through the suit so oh. it's basically like taking a vertical line and forcing it into something more of a squidge not matching the seams and all that yeah, kind of exactly stuff. exactly yeah. so now i didn't know all of that either but that's that's the reason why we don't do it and Connery is complimented in the series as having suits with really clean lines. But in this film, he doesn't know how to properly wear a suit. And perhaps, and we, we know that because he's not buttoning his suits correctly. Well, holy shit, who knew, huh? Yeah, if Terrence Young knew, he probably uh, afterwards kind of ringed him out for it, probably. Well, I think Terrence Young might have even known that because Terrence Young is a guy who brought him to Anthony Sinclair and got him all of his suits cut right on Savile Row. But I That's think right. I think this has something to do with the production and it not being worthwhile to reshoot that scene where he's watching a hearse drop over the fucking cliff, right? Yeah, I can see Peter Hunt not really caring about that personally. Yeah, when, he, when he's when he's in the editing room, you know, it's like, mm -hmm. well, we could, you know, reshoot that whole scene with the with the zero budget that we have left, but. <laughs> mm -hmm. And as you know, I, I got to give a shout out there. All of that information came from the Suits of James Bond website by uh, Matt Spazier and Pete Booker and their podcast, is, which which we usually talk about every week we get to this feature of our show. is really, really worth checking out. But in this case, that information about the buttonholing and all of that, I got completely from that website. So really interesting information there. Check them out if you are so inclined. And uh, the other... Pretty yeah. meticulous. Yeah, oh yeah, these yeah that that the website's really quite cool, and I have often used uh, stuff from it in these little sartorial quizzes. So a big thanks to those guys, and definitely check out their work because it's cool, and their podcast is also cool. So well done, BFG. Your totals for the sartorial quiz on Doctor No, you had six out of nine. You did six out of nine there, buddy. That not a bad score. You are now this is the second quiz you've done on your own too, and I think you deserve a round for that. Thank you. Yeah, so six out of nine is still a passing grade. Last one you did with uh, Jeff, I believe you failed. So I think you're doing better on your own. <laughs> no offense, Jeff, but uh, you know you you had a letter home and a detention last time. I think you did, yeah. Eh, bad work. So let's move on, Josh, and talk about what Ian Fleming would think. This is where we touch into the source material that connects the world of Fleming to the world of the film. a giant squid do you think Fleming had nightmares about that like what do you think like wh why did he go there was it just because he had such a fascination with the ocean I know snorkeling and, and diving and, and I mean uh, aquaculture was part of his thing I and mean, he used to hang out with Jacques Cousteau do you think that this is just where that fucking squid in the book came from Maybe he, maybe Noel Coward had LSD and they took out and then he just then, but it, and the effect was still on him and he just started writing uh, but, but would that have made the edits you know what i mean yeah i don't know that suggests that he doesn't edit his work and we know he does he does edit his work yeah i mean what what was the 
the understanding of the giant squid. I mean, by the way, for the listeners who don't know what we're talking about, at the end of Ian Fleming, and it's not totally the ending, but yeah, basically the ending of Dr. No, there's a fucking giant squid that shows up. Bond has to single-handedly fight a giant squid with part of a fence that he rips off, isn't it? Something like that? Yeah, exactly. He like stabs it in the eye or something like that, right? Yeah, yeah, the magic space. Uh, anyway, it is a, it is, it's as wholly hyperbolic and ridiculous as we're making it sound. And anybody who's read the book, I'm sure, has been stunned, perhaps partly through excitement, but partly through humor with that scene. And I really, I'm not sure why Fleming, Fleming went there. And, you know, having read um, a couple books on him, most recently, the Matt Parker book, Goldeneye, there's no mention of it. Did you come maybe across he went anything? In, maybe he went and saw like uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea or something like that. And then he wrote about it afterwards. I don't know. That's all I can think as well. But that's almost like a die another day gesture. It really is. It's the Fleming equivalent of die another day, isn't it? <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. I think we can make a t-shirt of that. Giant squids. Plus. The Fleming equivalent of die another day. Maybe. No, that's, 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 not a, that's not a t-shirt, is it? No, it's more like a, a button. <laughs> Given away at, at, at free poetry conventions. Exactly. Right. Well, what do you think? Seriously, what do you think? I mean, we have a record of how Fleming felt about Dr. No. After seeing Connery in performance, he was quite pleased. He was, yes. He was skeptical at first, like everyone else was. But when he saw him, he really liked him in the role. Mm -hmm. um, and he also uh, was very smitten, as I mentioned earlier, of Ursula Andress as well. Yeah, he for certainly was. For, yeah. obvious, for obvious reasons. Yeah, and you can't blame him, can you? Not really, no. It's kind of funny, too, because it is too pity that they did dub her, because if you go to watch, if you see any of the documentaries of Ursula talking, she seems like such a sweetheart. Like, she has like a very thick kind of German accent, and uh, and uh, she's just kind of like, oh, marvelous man, marvelous man. Oh, he was wonderful, wonderful. You know, like, <laughs> that's basically what, what she's like. Well, let's have a look here. I'm going to read now from Matt Parker's book on GoldenEye. Uh, we've said a couple times already on the show that this film is kind of like Fleming's ideal of Jamaica. You know, the white man enjoying the colonial life for as long as he can until it disappears. Still a place where you can hire and fire black people, essentially. Yeah, yeah don't worry. We have our bit on Quarrel here, so... Mm -hmm. We do. And sit back. Sit back mm -hmm. and... Uh... And drink it in, but that's why that's why I think it's important to contextualize some of this stuff with uh, Parker's book because he gets into the racism of the time. He gets into this sort of the empire is sinking. Let's go to the last outposts, and Jamaica was one of the last outposts, right? That's right. All right, so let's see. Now, just before Doctor No was published in 1957, well, it was written in 1957, but before Doctor No was published, of course, from Russia with Love almost brought an end to the James Bond character, didn't it, Josh? Yes, that's correct. He almost, he almost essentially, essentially uh, people thought that he was actually killed at the end of the story. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and in Dr. No, he's brought back to life through the help of Mathis, we learn, and a great um, recuperation period. And so M sends him on this particular case to Jamaica as an easy sort of um, welcome back, I guess, to service. And it's also M's very shrewd way of testing his agent. That's right. After the disappearance of the local secret agent, Bond, having recovered from his poisoning, is sent to Jamaica in large part as a rest cure. Something easy to start with, a bit of a breather. As in Live and Let Die, Dr. Jamaica is highly effective in this regard. 
At the fictional Blue Hills Hotel, Bond was welcomed with deference because his reservation had been made by the King's house. Here, he took off his London clothes, washed his hair to remove the last dirt of city life. Then he pulled on a pair of Sea Island cotton shorts and, with a sensual pleasure at the warm, soft air on his nakedness, unpacked his things and rang for the waiter. Elsewhere, the Jamaica of Dr. No is similarly traditional. The Jamaica drawn in Live and Let Die and written about by Fleming back in 1947 in his Horizon article. It's a backwards, unchanged place of sensuality, deference, colorful history, physical beauty, and warm melancholy. Flying in over the island, Bond admires the azure and milk of the inshore shoals and the scattered dice of small holdings. In the high mountains of the interior, where the setting sun flashed gold on the bright worms of tumbling rivers and streams. Zaimaka, the Arawak Indians had called it, the land of hills and rivers. Bond's heart lifted with the beauty of one of the most fertile islands in the world. Driving over the mountains, Bond likewise enjoyed scenes unchanged for 200 years or more, and even imagines that he smelled the dung of the mule train in which he would have been riding over from Port Royal to visit the garrison at Morgan's Harbour in 1750. Elsewhere, he wallows in the melancholy of the tropical dust. The distinctly old-fashioned figure of Quarrel makes another appearance, of course, with his unquestioningly loyalty, childishness, and superstition. Quarrel navigates his small canoe to Crab Key by instinct and is backward enough, uh, like most of the other blacks, to believe in the story about a dragon defending the island. Bond's love interest, Honeychild Rider, encountered gathering shells on Crab Key is depicted as similarly innocent. Like Solitaire from Live and Let Die, she's a Creole beauty raised in the melancholy ruins of a great house. As she explains to Bond, the Riders were one of the old Jamaica families. The first one had been given the Beau Desert lands by Cromwell for having been one of the great people who signed King Charles's death warrant. He built the great house, and my family lived in it on and off ever since. But then sugar collapsed. Such a better backstory. Yeah, but you know, it's funny, isn't it? Last week, buddy, we were, or last episode, we were talking about what Kingsley Amos was referring to as the Fleming effect, which was to have such preposterous stories wrapped within very believable, tangible facts, details, and backstories. And here's a good example of that. You know, like we're reading about the child family, right? Or sorry, we're reading about the, the honey child. Yeah, the Ryder family. And we're believing that, like, we're we're kind of being seduced into it by the facts of the lo- of the, of the family history, when ignoring the fact that there's this girl collecting shells and selling them in Miami, right? Yes, exactly. But it works in the books, and it doesn't so much work in the film when we don't get anything but a hot body to 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 look at. Animated centerfold, basically. An animated centerfold, yeah. Who has her own voice dubbed? I mean, how can you? Uh, yeah, I know. For right, just designed to be that way. Anyway. Just moving on uh, a little bit here, just to keep it quick. In Dr. No, Bond is specifically defending Jamaica. So he's fulfilling his role as defined earlier by Felix Leiter when said, quote, protecting the security of the British Empire. There is a possibility that if Dr. No is not stopped, though, one of the misguided missiles could hit Kingston. But there are other threats to the colony, both obvious and subtle, as the fascinating opening pages of the novel establish. The novel starts with the sun setting punctually over Richmond Road, uptown Kingston, Jamaica, welcomed by the zing and tinkle of crickets and tree fogs in the fine gardens. The wide street contains the large homes withdrawn from the road of the colony's white elite, civil servants, bank managers, company directors. Everything is quiet, an empty stage, 
Inside the houses, the man, back from work, punctually at five, is having a shower or discussing a day with his wife, and at half past six, the street would come to life again with the cocktail traffic. It is Jamaica's Park Avenue, Fleming tells us, it's Kensington Palace Gardens, and at its top lie the grounds of King's House, where the governor and commander-in-chief of Jamaica lives with his family. In Jamaica, no road could have a finer ending, Fleming wrote. His eye, having gazed seemingly adoringly in the direction of King's House, the centre of British power, now focuses in the top intersection, where a substantial two-storey house with pillared entrances stand among tennis courts and sprinkler-fed lawns. This is the social mecca of Kingston, Queen's Club, and an accurate description of a real place. Here are gathered, as most evenings, uh, a bridge four representing colonial power, a brigadier in charge of the British armed forces in the Caribbean, Kingston's leading criminal lawyer, a senior professor from the university, and our old friend from Live and Let Die, the dashingly naval-looking John Strangways, the local representative of the British Secret Service. All are obviously British, but with their blast views and damn nuisances, and white. In contrast, we are informed that the steward is coloured. Suddenly we come to a point. All this is under mortal threat. Such stubborn retreats as Queen's Club, Fleming writes, will not long survive in modern Jamaica. One day it will have its windows smashed and perhaps be burned to the ground. Now, we've said before here on the show and in dealing with Fleming, I remember you did a really great uh, biography on him for our Looking Down the Literary Gun Barrel episodes, that Fleming, through the character of James Bond, was trying to preserve the empire, his little last holding of it. And he saw Jamaica, he saw Goldeneye as a preservation that needed to be saved. And this book does start off, and it does character that, it does sort of ha- have that sort of character, you know, of, of Bond, not just on another mission, but on a mission to save from the evil investors of China, from the evil, you know, rocket topplers of uh, Dr. No. You know, right. this idea of saving the empire. I mean, do you want to comment on that at all? Because I think it's it's a really big stroke in Fleming's later life and and very much part and parcel of why he sets the stories in Jamaica. Well, it's just him kind of holding on to the old world that he, that he was a part of, right? That's kind of like, it's like that Dylan Thomas poem, like, you know, uh, don't go gently into the night. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, you know, I wanted to set that up, particularly the sort of socio context of it, because that's going to feed into the part of the story that I'm going to read now. Okay, the actual uh, my actual extract from the book uh, has to do with Quarrel. And as we said in the film, he's a caricature. He's not given respect. He's not given dimension. He's just a black servant, essentially, who has aligned himself through respect and he has gained respect to these white figures. But he is ordered around by Bond almost almost immediately. And he. Um, he dutifully accepts his role, doesn't he? He does, yes. And that's a real sadness, you know, if you're looking for a, a nice projection. But I think that's the reality of Fleming's Jamaica. And here in the story, interestingly enough, we get a little bit more of Quarrel and we learn more about him and perhaps why he, he's managed to hold on to a relationship. Or we'll see. This is, I'm reading from the part now in Dr. No, when Bond and Quarrel do their night passage in the canoe to Crab Key. The weather held. The forecast from Kingston Radio was good. The nights were as black as sin. The two men got in their stores. Bond fitted himself out with cheap black canvas jeans and a dark blue shirt and rope-soled shoes. The last evening came. Bond was glad he was on his way. He had once, only once, been out of the training camp to get the stores and arrange Quarrel's insurance, and he was chafing to get out to the stable and onto the track. He admitted to himself that his adventure excited him. It had the right ingredients. 
physical exertion, mystery, and a ruthless enemy. He had a good companion. His cause was just. There might also be the satisfaction of throwing the holiday in the sun back in M's teeth. That had rankled. Bond didn't like being coddled. The sun blazed beautifully into its grave. Bond went into his bedroom and took out his two guns and looked at them. Neither was a part of him as the Beretta had been. An extension of his right hand, but he already knew them as weapon as but he already knew them as better weapons. Which should he take? Bond picked up each in turn, hefting them in his hand. It had to be the heavier Smith & Wesson. There would be no close shooting, if there was any shooting on Crab Key. Heavy, long-range stuff, if anything. The brutal, stumpy revolver had an extra 25 yards over the Walther. Bond fitted the holster into the waistband of his jeans and clipped in the gun. He put 20 spare rounds in his pocket. Was it over-insurance to take all this metal on what might only be a tropical picnic? Bond went to the ice box and took a pint of Canadian Club blended rye and some ice and soda water and went and sat in the garden and watched the last light flame and die. The shadows crept from behind the house and marched across the lawn and enveloped him. The undertaker's wind that blows at night from the centre of the island chattered, clattered softly in the tops of the palm trees. The frogs began to tinkle among the shrubs. The fireflies, the blink and blinks as Quarrel called them, came out and began flashing their sexual morse. For a moment, the melancholy of the tropical dust caught at Bond's heart. He picked up the bottle and looked at it. He had drunk a quarter of it. He poured another big slug into his glass and added some ice. What was he drinking for? Because of the 30 miles of Black Sea he had to cross tonight? Because he was going to die? Because of Dr. No? Because he was going into the unknown? Quarrel came up from the beach. Time, Cap'n. Bond swallowed his drink and followed the Cayman Islander down to the canoe. It was rocking quietly in the water, its bows in the sand. Quarrel went aft and Bond climbed into the space between the forward thwart and the bows. The sail, wrapped around the short mast, was at his back. Bond took up his paddle and pushed off and they turned slowly and headed out for the break in the softly creaming waves that was the passage through the reef. They paddled easily, in unison, the paddles turning in their hands so that they did not leave the water on the forward stroke. The small wave slapped softly against the bows. Otherwise, they made no noise. It was dark. Nobody saw them. They just left the land and went across the sea. Bond's only duty was to keep paddling. Quarrel did the steering. At the opening, through the reef, there was a swirl and suck of conflicting currents, and they were in amongst the jagged niggerheads and coral trees, bared like fangs by the swell. Bond could feel the strength of Quarrel's great sweeps with the paddle as the heavy craft wallowed and plunged. Again and again, Bond's own paddle thudded against the rock, and once he had to hold on to the canoe as he hit a buried mass of brain coral and slid off again. Then they were through, and far below the boat there were indigo patches of sand and around them the solid, oily feel of deep water. Okay, Cap'n, said Quarrel softly. Bond shipped his paddle and got down on one knee and sat with his back to the thwart. He heard the scratching of Quarrel's nails against canvas as he unwrapped the sail and then the sharp flap as it caught the breeze. The canoe straightened and began to move. It tilted slowly. There was a soft hiss under the bows. A handful of spray tossed up into Bond's face. The wind of their movement was cool and would soon get cold. Bond hunched up his knees and put his arms around them. The wood was already beginning to bite into his buttocks and his back. It crossed his mind that it was going to be the hell of a long and uncomfortable night. Hmm. So... Got a bit of bonding there between them as, as kind of like equals almost in a way. 
Kind of, yeah. I mean, I, I guess I didn't set that passage up as well as I could. I mean, there, there was another part before that, I think, where the, the characters had a sort of a little heart-on-heart heart after following a dinner that they had shared. But um, you can see the respect there, for sure. And in, 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 indeed, yes. Despite, you know, the colonial mentality of it, the respect is there, in, 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 in essence. But, you know, something else I'd like to draw your attention to there is what I find really striking about Fleming's uh, writing. And it is these passages of description which are very well controlled and the the, the sentence structure you know particularly um, particularly alluring don't you find like there's a slowness and a steadiness and the punctuation kind of draws you to read it a certain way you can't speed up even though you want to you know what I mean yes yeah you kind of go go step by step yeah and there, there is that and and I guess that's kind of like a, a regimented form and I don't know I, I quite like it there's a there's a prettiness to it while at the same time there's a regimented structure you know it's it's a nice style yes so anyway Dr. No the book um, it's a very tight uh, Dr. No the film is a tight adaptation of the book but it, it misses a lot of big set pieces and certainly misses the character development we get even though the book is rifled in racism we still get uh, a, a clearer look, I think, at um, figures that had more respect for the author maybe than they do the filmmakers. Fair enough. Know. That's that's a good breakdown. I, I agree with that. Yeah, it was, uh, as, as, as you said, like uh, you could have set up a little bit more context, but uh, I think it plays, it plays out well to the idea that you're trying to convey about Quarrel in particular. And uh, I, I think the book answers questions that the, not, the movie doesn't. And unfortunately, the movie gets a bit... Uh, uh, kind of misses the point, I guess you could say. Yeah, and I do like, I just like Fleming's writing too, you know, his writing of of that night passage is not dissimilar, or the beginning of the night passage is not dissimilar to the trepidation and, and the, the uncertainty of the uh, the underwater swim to Surprise Island and Live and Let Die, you know. There is a, yeah. a certainly a Jamaica feel to how he writes. And also, if you come back to the idea of the uh, the wind blowing, that was a big feature in The Man with the Golden Gun, also a Jamaica story, you know. Yeah, that's the, true. The Undertaker's Wind. Undertaker's Wind, that's right. From That's correct. That's what that got them ashore and everything. No, I really enjoyed Dr. No, the book. I know it was silly, but it was one of the first Fleming books that I read. And uh, although the ending is silly, it, the, the story itself is not, you know. I mean, the, the character writing is good. And I would it's encourage a, you to check that one out. It's a good travelogue and has some interesting characters. Uh, and and, and uh, for those who had some issues with the movie and the, what we're talking about, we do recommend pick it up and maybe you'll get a more better feel for the characters in the, in, than you did in the film. All right, so I guess with that done then, um, there's only one thing left for us to do, Josh, and that, of course, is to select our film for episode 27. Oh, I thought it was time to take over the world. <laughs> no, you can start that if you want, but I got supper to cook. I see you're just a stupid policeman. Yeah, anyway. I am. <laughs> nice work. All right, let's, uh, let's get on with the roulette, shall we? Indeed. Okay, BFG, once again, it's down to me and you to open up the doors of our casino and welcome in our guests. All right, come in, place your bets, place your bets. You could be a good doorman, actually. I can see you being a good doorman at a casino. I don't want to be a doorman. No, I like croupier. Would you like to be someone who uh, who works the tables instead? No, not really. No, you don't even want to have anything to do with casinos? No, not particularly. The, the, the mafia runs them. I'm not interested <laughs> in that. Not even our own casino? I'm pretty, sure that, I'm pretty sure the mafia runs them too. 
<laughs> you don't have a lot of faith, man, in our entrepreneurial ability to to like withstand uh, threats and <laughs> when when gambling is is involved. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Okay. Cool. Well, anyway, here we are at our own casino. I don't care who runs it, and uh, we're gonna spin this roulette and see what's coming next. So inside wheels going. not wanting to stop Josh the next bond that we're going to study is bond number 16 that is a license, license to kill license to kill about freaking time yeah license to kill finally showing up here on bond by numbers with only four films left to go license to kill is going to be the feature for episode 27 now what do you remember about license to kill josh i remember benicio the toro looking very pretty in that movie <laughs> very pretty yes explain what you mean by very pretty i don't know he's just like uh, he was kind of like a almost like a bad boy in that in that movie yeah, he was. Is it, uh, yeah, pretty, he was like a pretty boy almost. We just look that way now, I find, but he, he was a pretty boy back then. Okay, I didn't know. I don't know. I'm not, I'm, okay. not, I'm not up with it, man. I remember a tanker truck, and I remember uh, a missile launcher, and I remember Wayne Newton uh, pretending Wayne to Newton. be an evangelicist. No, a TV yeah. evangelist, right? That's right, yeah. And I remember uh, uh, I remember Robert Davies' villain, mm-hmm. the, the, the drug lord Sanchez. I think there's a lot I'm going to like about this film, actually, if I remember. And, it, and it's back to Dalton, uh, the the other Dalton movie. Yeah. And a Michael Kamen score, too, right? Michael Kamen, yeah. The, the right. Die Hard score and the Robin Hood Prince of Thieves score. All right. So uh, we've got some... Uh, and, and a trip to Hemingway's house in Cuba. Is that not also yeah. correct? Uh, well, in Florida, I believe, I Florida. believe it is. Key yeah. West. Yeah, it's in Key West. Key West, yeah. So, yeah, I think you'll dig this one for sure. Okay, let's uh, let's get into it. Let, let's get excited then. And hopefully we'll have um, 00 Chapman back with us too. Hopefully Jeff can come back and join the ride. Yeah. Well, only three well, shows to go. We certainly hope that our schedules can work out and get him back on board. Exactly, exactly. Uh, but, you know, we're more also happy to take his notes as well. Um, mm-hmm. we're, always, we're always up for his input and his say on these things, so... Okay, well, BFG, look, I think we did a good number on Dr. No. Uh, we were saddled a little bit uh, with some, some technical te- some difficulties, yeah, that we're going we're gonna to work through. But uh, Roll with the punches, that's all we can do. That's all what we always do here, yeah. So yeah. once again, uh, thanks for joining us along this ride. And yes. any, any closing yes. words, Josh, on Dr. No or the legacy of the film? I mean, it uh, spawned, uh, it, it gave birth to 23 children. The 24, really. 24 children, yes, absolutely. And, and a couple of spoofs. And some spoofs. Although some would say Thunderball really gave birth to the spoofs. I would say so, yeah. That was kind of the um, template for the spoofs in that way. Um, I think we kind of uh, stretched Dr. No out thin as much as we can, in my opinion. All right. Well, buddy, look, uh, it's been fun, so thanks very much. And I look forward to meeting you back here for License to Kill. Sayonara. (laughs) See ya. See ya.